This Adams Division podcast was filmed in front of a live studio audience. Buffalo just very cautious, careful, and defensive with Peterson, Middleton, Kruselinski out there. And during regulation, Boston had four power play opportunities, scored on one of them, which was the tying goal by Brad Park at 921 of the second period. Buffalo has three power play opportunities. His Park, the draw, the shot. It trickles in. It's knocked away. Park will it. Scores! Brad Park wins the game. Brad Park, a rebound. And the Bruins win. Three to two. The faceoff won by Peterson back for Park. The first one blocked. And Park drove it home. And the Bruins beat the Islanders on Tuesday night with it up to LaFontaine, he gets tripped up, gets it to May, and over the line, he's May going in on goal, he shoots, he scores! From the artificially cooled to 68 degrees Sportscaster Studios, this is Steve Bennett here with my good friend, Peter Winson, for another edition of the Adams Division Podcast. What's up, Peter? Uh, not, not a whole lot right now. I'm, I'm actually kind of trapped in the house because my driveway is all dug up at the moment. So I figured, what better time than now than to talk about Summer Slams of the past, and I don't mean Summer Slam 2006 because I wouldn't know what happened then anyway. I'm talking Summer Slam 88 to oh, let's just say 98. Well, our, say? our partnership began. <laughs> our partnership began with uh, with an idea to just kind of look at my list of 100 for the uh, place to be nation greatest WWE wrestler project. We took a look a list of my 100, and we had a lot of fun doing it. And I said. Hey, let's do these like quarterly. Let's like have a thing where every once in a while, every three, every four months, we do a show. And then around, uh, what was it, WrestleMania season, we rated WrestleMania's 1 to 14. So I came to you again, Peter, and I said, let's for our next one do the same thing, but let's do SummerSlam. And here we are. 1998 always seems to be a good cutoff point uh, for talking about WWF, at least for me, because it takes you close enough to the end of the century but it also excludes 1999 which is just straight up garbage from almost start to finish you know and for my opinion. and for me it's 98 is when i graduated high school so you know then 99 i'm going to college and um you know away from home and not you know i'm at syracuse in the, in, in that year and i'm not you know i'm not watching as much i'm you know doing college shit instead and so it's a good cutoff point for me too. Um, not to say I never watch, but not with the same focus that I did from '88 to '98. You know, I got to tell you this: SummerSlam's always been my favorite because my birthday is September first, so my parents always would let me get uh, SummerSlam um, on pay per view. You know, like that was always like part of my birthday gift. 
because it was so close to my birthday. So I would always order this. So I watched pretty much all of these live, except for, I think, three of them. Uh, I have a soft spot in my heart for SummerSlam because the first pay-per-view I ever saw was the 1988 SummerSlam, at least uh, you know, ordering it and watching it live. Uh, now, I've evolved to the point where when SummerSlam airs this year in 2018, I'm going to miss it because I'm going to be traveling elsewhere at baseball. So, you know, if you've listened to my podcast enough, you know that sometimes I value baseball over wrestling, even though I'm podcasting about this. But, uh, you know, if if you listen to my podcast, you know, I value Pearl Jam over just about everything. And I will be traveling for Pearl Jam during SummerSlam this year. So I will also not be not be watching it live because I'll be in Chicago for uh, for two Pearl Jam shows at Wrigley Field this this month. So I will also be missing it. And because of that, I have no idea what they're planning. Like, because I know I'm not watching, I've completely tuned it out. I assume Ronda Rousey is probably in the middle of it, but I have no idea. Is it Roman Reigns and, and Brock Lesnar again? It's uh, Reigns and Lesnar, oh. which is, is I think this is the third meeting, and uh, I have a very bad feeling that it's going to turn out like the first one, where the winner of the match will be a certain guy carrying a briefcase who is not in the match. Which, which was slick I, the first time. I mean, that's kind of slick. Uh, no, I, I I always ha- I always hate Money in the Bank cash-ins because it always just creates like an ultra weak champion. It's not like. It's not like this great moment where he overcame the odds to win a championship or something like that. It's usually a sneaky heel move. And, I mean, think of Seth Rollins and that whole championship reign. Like, the the way it began was by him pinning a guy who's not the champion when the whole rub was based on Brock Lesnar. No, that's uh, totally fair. Yeah. I, I just think that if you look at that specific match, it was a slick way to get out of having to have one of them lose if you didn't want that. I guess. I mean, That's to me, true. to me, I think Brock should have just went in there and squashed him like he had been doing to everyone else. But they had bigger plans for Roman Reigns than I did, so that was kind of a slick way to kind of get out of it. Yeah, I guess, and it'll be interesting to see what they do this year with that match. But like I said, I, I have an expectation for what I think is going to happen. But hey. You know, there's a reason why I kind of stick to an era uh, in in shows before Money in the Bank cash-ins because there's if I don't enjoy something as much, if I enjoy watching something from 1989 more, there's no shame in watching that. And since we live in this era now where there's so much available and we have the award-winning WWE Network, where I can watch primetime wrestling from April of 1999, by all means, I should I should go out and actually watch that. Absolutely. I think I got to a point where it's like, look, if I'm going to spend five hours a week watching wrestling, and there's hundreds of hours of the wrestling I love the most available to watch, why not spend those hours watching that? So I totally echo what you're saying there, and that's why what we're doing tonight is not breaking down the SummerSlam card or... Looking at the last few, we're going back to 88 to 98. And for anyone who didn't listen to our WrestleMania show, I probably should set this up a little bit, huh? What we're going to do is we're going to reveal from 11 to 1 uh, what SummerSlam 
between 88 and 98 fits in where for each of us. And when we get to the point where the SummerSlam will not be mentioned again, that's when we'll kind of break it down. Um, and we will go through all of them. And I think what we're going to do is in a second, we'll break down the last place show. Then we'll, <laughs> then we'll take a quick break and then we'll do two segments of five, five and five. And before the last segment, we'll get some plugs in. We'll talk about our own shows. We'll do that at the end. Uh, so, uh, well, the beginning of the end. And then uh, also we do have some lists from some people uh, from the place to be uh, podcast community. Uh, who sent me a few lists. I have a few of them, so we'll we'll give those out as well. Very so, nice. with all that said, if you are ready, I am ready to reveal my number 11 SummerSlam. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. I have 1994 as my number 11 SummerSlam. What do and you have? I do as, and I have 1994 as well, and going into this, and... Out of these 11 shows, I have actually watched 10 of them in the last two weeks or so. So it's a lot of pay-per-view wrestling watching for me. And I had almost was just going to assume and say, oh, well, 95 is going to be the worst one. And then I watched all of them. In 1994, this is an absolute atrocity of a show. Vince McMahon should have been indicted again by the federal government for putting on (laughs) this show and allowing it to happen. I mean, there's so many issues that I have from from start to finish. And you you might echo some of them, and you might not mind some of the things like Diesel versus Razor. A lot of people probably don't mind that. I I consider it a bit of a click-click wank fest because you got Shawn Michaels out there trying to show up Walter Payton, who who just kind of looks completely useless for, for much of that match. Uh, I, he, I know he's there because of, you know, the United Center and the, they're in Chicago and all that. But And we should say this, Peter. We should say this. Yeah. The 1994 show was in Chicago, Illinois. It's the first ever event at the United Center, and it was an attendance of 23,000. And as far as I know, they've never had a show in the United Center since. It's it's really strange because, yeah, they're famous for running the All-State Arena or the Rosemont Horizon, as it was known back then. But I guess the draw is to be able to have that first event in the building. But when it's going to be something like this, is it really something you want to you know, have it be remembered for? Yeah, it's Brett versus Owen in a cage. And yeah, it, it in terms of escape the cage rules, they played it psychologically as good as, as you can do it. However, you can't hide all the flaws that happen with that sort of thing. But here are some here are some other issues with that show. I mean, we don't even need to talk about the Undertaker versus Underfaker because that's horrible. That's so well, horrible. It's so well, tra- well traveled. I mean, I guess maybe the the whole hoo ha with the introductions was kind of fun. But we got Tatanka versus Lex Luger, the rare angle that hurt absolutely everybody that was involved in it because Tatanka turns heel seemingly out of nowhere, which just absolutely kills him forever because he's just never the same after that point. And he sticks around for like another 18 months or so before he finally leaves. 
Luger, he was kind of dead in the water, but at least if they had turned him heel, maybe we could have gotten you know, arrogant prick Lex Luger back that, you know, the one from 1989 that, that, that had such a great run. And DiBiase is a manager. The less I see of him, the better. Because he, he, he's just he's just terrible as a manager. And every time I see it, I'm just reminded of that fact. And then they follow up that angle with a match, Jeff Jarrett versus Mabel. I'm like, oh, clearly we're just going to get worse here. Because, uh, God almighty. And then we, we get the comedy segment where... Leslie Nielsen, it, fine, but he's got to get bring George Kennedy there because George Kennedy's fallen on hard times or something. Like, I, I don't, I don't understand. And the show is so stop start because you have then you have like the segment interviewing the Hart family. Which why do they keep going back to that? Why do they keep interviewing members of the Hart family? <laughs> when has that ever worked out positively? <laughs> they love it. They love it. They I love mean, that. They love playing that card. They really do. Yeah, you know what we need? We need to hear more from Diana Hart-Smith. Yeah, that's that we, we need to hear more from her, although she turns up in some other SummerSlam shows Which we'll get down to. the road. Right, we'll get to her more. She's That won't be the last time we mention Diana Smith in this uh, in this episode, that's for sure. I, one thing I want to mention about the uh, Undertaker versus Underfaker match, and I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this in your viewing, but there's a point a couple of minutes into the match where... The, they're they're fighting on the outside and the crowd is very hushed and even Vince starts shitting on the match and says, wow, the crowd really doesn't know how to react to what's going on here. It's like, alright, well, even if Vince is kind of settled on the fact that this is not going well and he's actually vocalizing it on commentary, uh, like I said, just an atrocity of a show that had alright, actually, I also like the Alondra Blaze versus uh, Bull Nakano or Bull Nakano. I don't know which pronunciation is the official one, but that one was okay, and the Hearts was okay, but even that post-match, it was a heel post-match beatdown, which we just saw with Tatanka and Luger. It felt like too much of the same thing, but I, I blame some of the booking for the year following Vince's trial on the fact that they were too focused on making sure he didn't go to the pokey. Not that they need a plug, but this is a, a SummerSlam that Something to Wrestle has covered, and Conrad actually does do a good job kind of holding Bruce's feet to the fire on a lot of things, including the Undertaker under Faker thing. And what refresh my memory, what's the story with them kind of blowing it with a pizza box thing? They took a sponsorship with Domino's and there were some pizza boxes and they spoiled something because of it. I forget what. I'm trying I'm trying to remember. I I don't know if I, I listened to that to that episode of Something to wrestle. There's something uh, there, and there's probably people screaming it at us, you know, like at their radios right now. But they blew something, you know. If it wasn't bad enough, they gave something away on pizza boxes. Uh, we we were talking earlier about how we were excited to uh, slam this show, but we didn't want to uh, to slam Walter Payton. So I told yeah. you, I'm like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna get the book out, sweetness. And see if Jeff Perlman wrote about SummerSlam at all in the book, and he did. So I have a quick oh oh I have a quick uh, part to uh, to read. So this nice. just to put into perspective the significance of this in Jeff Perlman's eyes in the life of Walter Payton. It's a 472 page ebook. Okay, so that's <laughs> that's pretty big. Here we are. Payton made spur of the moment decisions that baffled those around him. 
He ex- he accepted an invitation from the World Wrestling Federation to serve as Razor Ramon's guest manager for something called SummerSlam. The end. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's that that's a that's amazing. And of course, it's always the way wrestling is portrayed. Or like, uh, why would you even? Why would you even think of doing something like that? Like, oh, you know, yeah. like surprised it's not phrased in like, oh, you don't see uh, Earl Campbell doing, uh, you know, <laughs> I just show. <laughs> I just love that sentence for something called SummerSlam. Period. <laughs> that's it. So, oh my Jeff, goodness! Jeff Perlman is a good friend of mine, and uh, his books are fantastic. And Sweetness is maybe the best of them. And um, a quick plug for him in September, he has a book about the USFL coming out. Uh, and Jeff will be on my podcast to talk about that. And he has, listen to this, Peter, I don't know if you heard this, but uh, Jeff has promised that on my podcast, uh, when we talk about the USFL book, he will be revealing exclusively the topic of his next book. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty cool, huh? I- is it going to be the uh, history of something called SummerSlam? <laughs> I think it's safe to say that it will not be about SummerSlam. <laughs> but it's it's going to be the uh, the history of the uh, Dominic Hasek Buffalo Sabers. <laughs> yep, that's why he's saving it. That's why he's saving it for my yeah. show. He's like, I got the perfect yeah. place to uh, to unveil this. But yeah, this show stinks. Uh, for best match, I did say Brett versus Owen. Uh, I really didn't see anything else that. Like, it's nowhere near as good as a WrestleMania 10 match, not even close, uh, but it's the best thing on this. And for MVP, I picked Owen Hart uh, just because I'm going to pick Brett as MVP for a different one. So this was a chance to kind of tip my hat to Owen because he was such a great performer. Uh, so that's really all I have to say about it. Is there anything else you want to say about SummerSlam 1994? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, that certainly certainly was the best match, but it also, when you go back and you watch it, it, it exposes is how the escape the cage rules and how the there's I mean they're they're certainly playing to it better than most cage matches but it's something that always just kind of screws with my mind and for MVP I wrote down I wrote down both hearts but that that's really kind of a kind of a cop out and I don't think there should be two MVPs on a show like this so like you I'm going to go with Owen because I do have Brett lined up for an awful lot later on to the point where he might be uh, Mr. SummerSlam, if you will. All right. Well, the Adams Division podcast is off and running. That's number 11, 1994. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go from 10 to 6. Uh, and we have some uh, some dandy shows to talk about there. So, Peter, uh, go fill your drink or uh, take a piss. Uh, I am going or, to... Oh- I'm going to reread all of the text about Walter Payton and SummerSlam and Jeff Perlman's book. And by the time I'm done, we'll be back. All right. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. The Adams Division Podcast Summer Slam Spectacular 1988 to 1998. We are back. 
We started off our countdown. Number 11 was 1994. Peter, what did you have as your 10th rated SummerSlam? Well, for number 10, I had what I thought was going to come in last with SummerSlam 1995. Conveniently enough, I also had SummerSlam 1995, which was held in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Igloo. Don't call it anything but the Igloo. They had 18,062 people there, and Vince McMahon, Jerry Lawler, and Dox Hendricks were on the commentary. What is it you did or didn't like, maybe is the better way to put it, about SummerSlam 1995, Peter? Not a great year for the company in general. Did you happen to know that the Igloo had what was sort of a retractable roof that yeah got used yeah you know what else is really crazy about it the first time i was ever there i was walking up to it and i noticed that you can see the inside or could it's gone now but you could see the inside of the building from the outside of the building like there was this like little like it wasn't closed properly maybe because of the roof and if you're looking at the it building was, in the right spot, you can, you can see inside. Like it was, it's probably why the ice always sucked in there. It was it was always kind of a kind of a crooked building. And uh, it, actually, real quick, because it's probably more entertaining than the SummerSlam '95 show actually was. Uh, I, I I went one time to the Igloo in Pittsburgh in 1998 for a Bruins Penguins game. And coming out of the arena, I'm wearing my Bill Ranford Bruins jersey, as I was wont to do, and I still wear once a year. And th- the Bruins had lost five, five to two. So whatever. So people start harassing me, like on the street, like from their car. And as I, I cross the street in front of a car, and they're like giving it to me, I grabbed my crotch and spit on their hood, <laughs> and kept walking. And and one of them. There's like a guy who like pops out of the sunroof and he like literally like a cartoon character starts shaking his fist at me. And I thought that is that is so amazing. But I probably should never come back to Pittsburgh after that point. So I I was there three times, twice for Pearl Jam and once for a Sabres Penguins game that was actually pretty historic because it was the night that they announced on the ice before the game that Mario Lemieux was the owner and that they were building console energy center and that the franchise was saved. Oh. And um, so it was a really interesting game also because the Penguins were leading in the last minute. And Chris Drury uh, scored a goal to tie it, which was interesting because SL Price from Sports Illustrated was there that night to write an article about Chris Drury and Chris Drury being clutch and what it would mean to him if he could bring a Stanley Cup to Buffalo, which, of course, he didn't. No. And uh, years, not, not years, entirely his fault, <laughs> right? And years later, I talked to uh, to Mister Price, who's a good friend of the uh, Sportscasters podcast, about that night and about that, you know, about that moment, about how you know he's there, he's writing this piece about this player and, and how he's clutch and he scores all these big goals. And sure enough, you know, in the last minute, he he ties the game, which the Sabers lost in a shootout. But at that point, they you know, we're like 17 points ahead in the Eastern Conference and we're going to win the President's Trophy. And it wasn't all that important, the game itself, but it was uh, a pretty historic night to be there. Uh, as far as this SummerSlam thing, not so historic. <laughs> Just no. not not a, light to, not a lot to like about it. I mean, the sh- I-, I like the Sean versus Razor match. I know sometimes Sean can be really polarizing for you. 
it's it, it's a solid match. Outside of that, there's there's just not a lot to like on here. Okay, the 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 latter match is fine, even though there was no real reason to have it other than the Gorilla Monsoon. Oh, I gotta do something for the fans, and you know, I guess the oh it's better to have Shawn Michaels versus Razor in this match than to have him face Sid. Of course, at the Survivor Series the following year, we would learn differently that you could have a good Shawn Michaels versus Sid match. But anyway, um, of course, this is a match where Shawn Michaels acts unprofessional because he can't reach the damn belt from a ladder, which, you know, was his own fault. But um, that prompted my tweet. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if it was that show or a different time that Shawn Michaels acted unprofessionally. But, <laughs> uh, you know, my my the more you know quote for this will be never watch a Shawn Michaels match where he acts unprofessional uh, first thing in the morning because it'll just put you in a bad mood for the entire day. Um, I am going to offer a defense of the notion of Mabel being king of the ring which I know is not something that people are, are you know, willing to sort of do. It was the right idea to have a guy that huge, a monster heel, even if he was clumsy and just hurt everybody. But he was the wrong guy to put against Diesel because that was a train wreck of a main event for, you know, I guess they're doing monthly pay-per-views at that point because the In Your House had started, but... It's one of your biggest shows of the year, and you're main eventing it with Diesel versus Mabel. I mean, Bret Hart could have got something, I think, out of Mabel, especially, you know, the motivated, I'm getting <laughs> shunted down the card, Bret Hart of 95, who actually, I kind of like the Bret versus Isaac Yankum match. Um, yeah, that's of course, not I'm, bad. I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of the whole Bret and Lawler feud in general as a good thing for Bret that kind of giving him something to do outside the title picture. More on Bretton Lawler coming up later. But uh, I was thinking about, as I'm watching Brett versus Isaac Yankum, you know, Isaac Yankum being Kane, they barely cross over Kane and Brett. Kane debuts the next-to-last pay-per-view that Brett, you know, before before Montreal. Right. So they only, cro- they only cross over for a month, and Kane isn't an active wrestler until... I think WrestleMania 14. So to see those two guys in the ring is uh, a kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Hakushi one, two, three kid is pretty good opener. In my opinion, uh, that, that was a pretty good match as well. But other than that, I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot special on this show. It, wasn't this the one where Bertha Fay beat, uh, uh, Alundra Alundra Blaze. Blaze yep. for the uh, for the women's title. They pro- they probably should have kept the belt on Bertha Fay for another for several months until they ran out the clock on the whole division. They gave him four minutes and fourteen seconds for that thriller. Well, you know, there there was a lot of other important nineteen ninety five WWF stuff to get out there because we need twenty seven minutes of Shawn Michaels pouting to uh, uh, to get through. So I still. Have- uh, yeah. I had the Sean Razor match as my best match, and I gave Razor the MVP uh, just because he wasn't the one acting unprofessional in the best match. So I gave it to Razor. Yeah, actually, for my best match, for the reasons that I gave earlier, I I actually put Brett versus Isaac Yankum, which I know is going to be insane to most people. But at the same time, I'm also going to give my MVP to Razor for not 
beating the hell out of Sean for acting the way he did near the end of the match. Of course, he's out of commission at that point, and he probably wouldn't have seen it, but even still, he can duck. I, I love how I'm lauding Scott Hall for his professionalism. In, <laughs> in that. Oh, all people. I mean, come on. Well, hopefully the pick, the people of Pittsburgh don't feel too sorry for him because in a couple of years they get to see the Undertaker throw mankind off the hell of cell. So that was probably yeah, pretty awesome. Back. They made up yeah. for it a few years later. All right, my number nine, SummerSlam, if you're okay with moving on from uh, yep. from that beauty. My number nine was uh, 1993. What did you have at number nine? Mine is also 1993, which is a show that I actually watched today as we are taping this. Detroit, Michigan, the Palace of Auburn Hills, 23,954, so a huge crowd. Uh, Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan uh, did the uh, color. I have been to the Palace of Auburn Hills one time in 2006 for Pearl Jam, and it is the day that I met Mr. Mike McCready outside of the arena. Would you like to hear the story? Oh, well, by all means. So... We parked – this is an arena in the suburbs, okay? Like it's not in the city at all. You kind of drive – at least from where we were coming, you kind of drive past the city and you you know, you pass 8 Mile. Like you see the signs for 8 Mile and you're driving and it just keeps getting nicer and nicer. You're in the suburbs and you get off. And, and we parked wherever we parked. And it was in the era of the 10 Club where uh, your fan club tickets needed to be picked up at will call the day of the show. So we get out of the car and we start walking. It was – uh. My friend Josh, who is uh, a younger brother of one of my good friends, and, and it was him and I who went to this show. And uh, we were walking up towards the arena, and we said, all right, I think we need to go left to get to the front of the building to get we'll call and get our tickets. We really needed to go right, so we went the wrong way. So what we ended up doing was walking behind the arena instead of walking in front of the arena. So as we got to behind, uh, just – Standing there all by himself, just standing there, was Mike McCready. And uh, I said to Josh, I said, wow, Mike's standing right there. Let's go say hello. So Josh and I went up, and I said, hey, Mike, I'm Steve. And he said, hey, I'm Mike. And it was literally the three of us there for 25 minutes talking before Mike said, great to meet you guys. I got to go in. We're doing sound check in a minute. So it was just the three of us talking for 25 minutes. Mostly we talked about Crohn's disease because uh, Mike and I both have it. And uh, we talked about uh, this was on the um, the Avocado record or the Pearl Jam, uh, the Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam album. And there's a song on that called Inside Job, which Mike wrote the lyrics and music to. And that was the first time he ever had a song on an album where he had done both. So we kind of talked to him about that. And he, he told us about how he was in Hawaii and, you know, walking around on the beach and, and kind of told us the story behind the song and. I mean, it was just the coolest thing. It wasn't in the days of cell phone cameras, so I didn't get a picture. Maybe I would have. I'm not a big picture guy. I mean, for me, it was just enough to, like, shake his hand, thank him for everything he'd done, talk to him about our disease and what we go through to manage it, and to literally have 25 minutes of a private audience with a member of Pearl Jam, you know, for someone who's been to 81 shows, that was a pretty, pretty special moment. So I will always hold the Palace of Auburn Hills, close to my heart because I went left when I should have went right. Well, that's a, that's a lot better story than me walking past Manny Machado in the hallway at SunTrust Park early this year and forgetting to say hello 
or or goodbye as it, it should have been. It's <laughs> also a lot better story than when I was standing one inch away from Eddie Vedder, which is the most humiliating story of my life. So does that mean I have to tell it? Uh, we'll 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 save it. We'll save for, it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, Ninety three SummerSlam. Yeah, this is very fresh in my mind because, as I said, I, I watched this one today in the hopes that maybe it would be bumped up a spot, and I I, I kind of left it where I had it in my initial ranking because I, I I think I've watched it three times I think since the network uh, since I got the network in uh, 2014. Um, there's no title changes on this show, which is kind of odd because usually the WWF would you know, at least have one title change hands on a pay-per-view. Usually they're continental at SummerSlam because that had happened, I think, five straight times up to uh, SummerSlam 93. And that, and that match between Sean and Perfect is a... Uh, w- w- yeah, I know, I'm ripping Shawn Michaels again, but uh, it's just a complete disappointment. And Sean, quite frankly, looks kind of fat. And uh, it, it did not live up to the billing. Also, count-out finish which you think to yourself, oh, they did a count-out finish in a title match. Surely they won't do that again to close the show. No, no, not only are we going <laughs> to do a count-out finish, but we're also going to you know, drop fucking balloons or whatever from the ceiling and have all the baby faces come out and put them on their shoulders. And then, just to add insult to injury on the network version, we're going to show the Ludwig Borga angle to show just how much we wanted to immediately bury Lex Luger in the aftermath of this. After... After so, you know, does the problem with the way they built him up was that they they put him on a tour bus like he's campaigning in the New Hampshire primary when he should have been on TV kicking, you know, the heels is you know, kicking ass on the heel side for like six weeks leading up to this and then winning the title because I think the crowd was ready, you know, there. I mean, all signs pointed to him winning the title, right? I mean that. That's how the show yeah. should have ended. But, uh, I mean, it's it's kind of a difficult thing to watch in retrospect. And I'm not just talking because of what Lex is now and with Yokozuna being dead. Uh, the commentary on this show, uh, he, I'm thinking Heenan, not so much Vince, because by 93 he had kind of was starting to lose his one, two, three. He got him. You know, that, that, that's the sign that Vince was certainly lost his fastball. It, it was it, it was good on this show, but the saving grace of SummerSlam 1993, that Jerry Lawler speech when he comes out on the crutches and concocts this whole story about being cut off by the blue-haired grandma and then like all this this great tale that he that he wove and then, Oh no, we're going to get Doink versus Brett, which is actually a really good match for what it is until Lawler runs in and you work the angle in that way and then you end up getting your Brett versus Lawler match and I love the finish of that match so much where Brett just holds that sharpshooter for like 7 minutes longer than you think he is cuz all the agents are surrounding him and the as if all that isn't enough. So much good stuff with with Doink and, and Lawler's speech that I just said. 
this is also the show where Doink came out with the with the bucket, and he throws the bucket of confetti on the fans, and you're like, oh, okay, that that's it. No, he's got a bucket of water, and he's got it right right for Bruce Hart, and that is so magnificent because anytime they can screw over Bruce Hart in in any way, and, and by the way, Bruce Hart, uh, he like tries to insert himself into it like a couple of different times and it's just so it's just so embarrassing to watch that guy like operate Uh, i suggested on twitter earlier today that i wouldn't mind that if if wwe would hire me as their uh as a second archive guy and by the way i I am available (laughs) he's looking commute down to I would commute down to Stanford and I would just camp there for like three or four days every week and then just drive home afterwards. What I would do is I would go through all the WWE Network stuff and I would find all the Bruce Hart stuff and I would dub over his voice like they've done with so many great theme songs over the years. And I would dub over anytime Bruce Hart talks with the uh, the thing that they play in Peanuts when any adult talks, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> I, I would do that, and it would enhance every Bruce Hart angle because that guy is clearly just the worst. But and if you read Brett's had, book, if you read Brett's book, it's like every time Bruce Hart comes up, it's some disaster know, is following it. Yeah, it, I mean, let's just say here's how bad the Lex Luger Yokozuna finish is. It's the worst finish to an event ever in that building, and that building had the Ron Artest running into the stands and causing a riot. Yeah, yeah, that was <laughs> that was something else. Uh, that was the only NBA game that ever ended by a countout. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed I enjoyed the the tag match that started it. Did you like that at all? The Steiners versus Heavenly Bodies. When I rewatched the show, it was like. Well, I'm going to move them up a tick each in the uh, in the greatest uh, tag team thing for Place to Be Nation. I like that match a little bit to say something positive yeah. about the show. I enjoyed that for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah, that that was a good one. Um, uh, I, I love Scott Steiner throwing guys around with suplexes, and I always think, you know, whatever happened to that guy? Like, why couldn't he have just continued being that guy? Because people certainly liked him as that. And he could have stayed as that and kept his, you know, just obtained the personality that he got later. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I mean, yeah, that was a pretty good match. It, it's certainly one of the best Steiner Brother matches in uh, that they had during that very brief run. It's kind of shocking how how brief that ended up being and how it just just didn't work. And but kudos also to the Heavenly Bodies because I. On like one of those suplexes, uh, uh, Jimmy Del Rey, he like went flying on, and I was like, "Oh, how about that, uh, Jimmy Jimmy Del Rey there?" But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's some good there, uh, which keeps it from being the all-time worst. But uh, it's certainly a uh, bottom half of the time period that we're covering. For best match, I put Brett versus Doink slash Jerry. I don't know if that's cheating or not, but. Oh no, that is one continuous match, yeah. and that is definitely, uh, definitely the match of the night for me. And for my MVP, it, it's got to be Lawler. Yeah, just, I went with the King too. Every everything mm-hmm. that he did all through that angle. I mean, it was just, it was just perfect, quintessential Jerry Lawler. Which, you know, it, it was almost kind of like. I don't want to say it was like Memphis Lawler because he's, you know, he's the baby face and the hero there. But 
Um, you know, I, I really love what he brought to the table. So, so far we both had 11, 94, 10, 95, 9, 93. And for number eight, I have 1996. And I have 1988. I have 96, obviously higher. Okay. So for number seven, I have 1988. Yes. So that means we talk about 1988. Yes. All right. New York, New York, uh, Madison Square Garden, 20,000 people in attendance, Gorilla Monsoon, and unfortunately, uh, Billy (laughs) Billy Graham were on commentary for this one. Uh, The very first SummerSlam, and I got to start by saying this, I was pumped. Seven-year-old Steve was pumped for SummerSlam 88. I mean, pumped out of my mind. Like, I could not wait for this show. I had buddies coming over. You know, my parents would let me order it. You know, this is like kind of the start of the tradition. It's close to my birthday. Have a sleepover. Invite the guys over. It's the end of summer. SummerSlam 88 is going to be on. And I was freaking pumped. Couldn't wait. Well, as I said, this was the first pay-per-view that I ever saw live. And... Uh, as, as a young lad, I was certainly a fan of Brutus the Barber Beefcake, no matter what other certain podcasters might be calling him these days. And like I always say, Ed Leslie, big Bruins fan, so um, he's he's on my side. Um, and I remember that weekend on Superstars because until 93, at least 93, and maybe went even to 94, they held SummerSlam on Monday nights because they were going to get preempted for primetime wrestling on USA anyway. So they would run SummerSlam on pay-per-view in lieu of that on the Monday night. And for, for that whole beefcake thing, I thought, oh, well, he's going to win the Intercontinental title against the Hockey Talk Band, and he's going to cut his hair. And it's going to be so cool. And then he, they run the Ron Bass angle literally the Saturday before. So on the 27th, he's shown injured on Superstars. With and the then X. on the 29th, yep. With the, the X big red on X. screen, yep. Love the big red X. Me too. That, that's one of the last times I think they ever used that. And so they get to the show, like, oh, uh, yeah, Honky, uh, d- d- Beefcake won't be here, but uh, he, he will have an opponent. And you got the uh, send anybody out here. I, I don't care who it is. And. It's a great moment, much as I don't like the Ultimate Warrior. But let me ask you this, because I, I wrote down a question that I, I want to pose to you. Can you name one thing that happens before the main event that is not the Ultimate Warrior winning the IC title from this show? Like, what's the first thing that comes to mind from SummerSlam 88 before the main event that's not the Intercontinental thing that's 30 seconds? The Bulldogs and Rougeau's match, because I love it. Really? Yeah. It, it's it, uh, To me, it's a little... It's a little slow to the point where it telegraphs the draw, which I think happens a lot when you have these opening match draws. I mean, like the NWA, I think they started every single Super Show with a draw in 1988. I'm just kind of going off memory there. It's not a bad match, but in terms of the Bulldogs, I mean, they were really past their sell-by date. In, In watching some of their stuff... See, the, but uh, in context, but, yeah. not not to cut you off, but in context, I'm seven. 
You know what I mean? So I just, oh yeah, I just love the Bulldogs, and I'm so pumped that they're they're starting the show. You know, and it just like like I said, I'm so pumped for this show in general. You know, like I'm just going nuts, and then they bring the Bulldogs out first, and they have to me what is like. I don't understand at that point that they're telegraphing. Yeah, in retrospect, now watching it as a you know a jaded thirty-seven-year-old man who has seen ten thousand more matches since then, you know I get that. But because of the context of when I seen it and what it meant to me at the time, it's just kind of ingrained in my mind as like this is how SummerSlam started, and it was with this team that I liked, and you know I didn't know that they had had this crazy thing with brass knuckles or loaded quarters and a fight and that dynamite was neutered and they'd never be the same. Like I didn't know all that. So that, that match, you know, just has like a place in my heart because I loved the Bulldogs and I was pumped for this event and it was first and, and they did put on a pretty good match. If you didn't realize that they're telegraphing a draw. It is one of the better matches on the show, but I think it, it also suffers from what the WWF would actually do from time to time is uh, some of the matches didn't make any sense with the feuds that they had going on. Like, wh- why, is, why isn't why is Morocco facing Greg Valentine? Why is he facing Dino Bravo? Why is Jake facing Hercules and Rick Rude is facing Junkyard Dog? There's a certain disconnect to all of that where you say, well, why are we not paying these off? Well, I guess maybe they were still had consideration for, for saving stuff yeah. for, for house shows. And uh, who knows how long they had planned to have a summer pay-per-view in advance. I mean, they probably had considered it at the beginning of the year. And uh, this would never it, work now, but like back then you didn't get to see like JYD and, and, uh, Rick Rude, that's a match on this show, right? Yeah. Okay. So, like, those two guys never fought each other on TV back then. It would be, you know, JYD versus Barry O. You know, so for, like, a seven-year-old me watching this, it was like, okay, cool. These two guys are fighting. You know, like, the only time on TV in this era that you'd see a match like that was the feature bout on primetime. You know, you might see, you know, two guys like that or if you went to a house show. So this show would never work in this era and when you rewatch it, you know, it's a bit of a mess and Billy Graham, oh, he's so bad. You know, and I just wish they like like it kills I just wish they would have just had Gorilla and Jesse and Jesse walk off like with four matches left or something. It, if um maybe it's my own personal Stockholm syndrome, but I I I'm somehow able to tune out Graham's kind of worst moments on this show. I find him kind of funny, but enough about what I find bad on this show, because the main event here is just aces. Awesome. It's awesome. It it is. It's truly a main event. And Jesse as the referee is a nice touch because you already had DiBiase playing God with the referees and buying them off. So that's why you have Jesse there because Jesse's this, sort of singular figure where he's not he's certainly not a baby face but he's not a complete heel either because people sort of like him and they but they tease him by having him take money from DiBiase leading up to it and he's I don't know if I would name him the MVP of this show but 
there's one moment, and I think in texting with you about a week ago about this show, I, there's one thing that Jesse does before the match that I absolutely love is when he before the match when there's like the little delay and they're milling around and he does the power move of moving the tag ropes to the opposite corner right, right. For, for for no for no discernible reason at all other than to basically assert that it is my authority to move the tag move the tag ropes and I I think the reason why he did it was to set up the spot where. Hogan taps him on the shoulder and Jesse could turn around and just give it to Hogan on camera on pay-per-view. And it was, it was just so great that, that that actually happened. And the finish was perfect with him hesitating for the three count and Savage just kind of carrying his arm down. And then of course the role in the mega powers split eventually where you get, you're still working that subtle right, stuff, the hand on know, the hip. The, the hand on the yeah, head. Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, it, in actual, I mean, it, unless you want to count Warrior Hockey, which really isn't a match. I mean, it's just kind of a spectacle for 30 seconds. I mean, it's a one-match show, but it's a, it's a really, really fun match. And it's Andre's last hurrah as, like, the A main eventer. Right. And you don't – I think they might have done a couple of house shows after this, but – this is the end. You you never see Hogan and Andre share the ring ever again. Even in Royal Rumbles, they're very careful that Andre is gone long before Hogan ever shows up. So if you if you have that childhood memory of Hogan and Andre, this is the last time you ever see them together. And you know, rewatching this show for this project, I I text you right away after. I'm like, that's such a great main event. Like the 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 crowd is so hot for it. The star power is off the charts. You know, this is peak Hogan, peak Savage, peak Elizabeth. They do a great job protecting Andre's limitations where he comes off as just a major, you know, major, major threat to the mega powers the whole time. You know, maybe looking back now, you can see a little bit that he's, you know, that he, he's limited. But, at, but man, they, they did such a great job and it's such a fun match. And, you know, the one thing I, I that is too bad is... It was revealed, maybe again on Pritchard's show, that the plan was for Elizabeth to get into much skimpier clothes than she did. You know, because uh, what was the thing Savage kept saying in the buildup? Itty bitsy, itsy bitsy, teeny weeny polka dot bikini. From, right, from that song, yeah. Right, so that's what they were supposed to pay off, and then at the last minute, Savage said no, no way. So that's why it was only. Basically, her at, and like you see the bottom of what would be a one piece bikini. Basically, still yeah, enough, it is kind, still enough is to pop my little rod finish. at the time, though. Yeah. I think I had about a two inch rod at the time, and it popped. I think for it, you know, when she uh, when she did that. But oh, it's just such a great, great. It's all of four stars for me. All of four stars, if not a little bit more, maybe four and yeah. four point two five. Maybe I, I love yeah, it. A, Go ahead. That's the clear best match, and in terms of the MVP. Uh, it's so hard to decide between Savage, Hogan. DiBiase, I gave it to the Mega Powers. Even, even, even Jesse. So I'm going to give my MVP to Gorilla Monsoon for dealing with uh, <laughs> nice. Superstar Billy Graham for for three consecutive hours. Very on nice commentary. Very and, nice. And not and, and because, by the way, Graham uh, actually uh, Monsoon had declared Graham dead at a 1981 column. I, I think it was 1981. He wrote a column in Philadelphia, and Graham 
reached out to Monsoon and said, hey, I'm not dead. Can you issue a correction? <laughs> and Monsoon's like, no, I'm not going to issue a correction. That'll harm my credibility. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> but I'm not dead. <laughs> that's so fantastic. Great, yeah, yeah I, I gave the MVP to the Mega Powers. Maybe a little bit of a cop out there, but yeah, whatever. Mm. All right. That means I assume you need to tell me what your number seven is, correct? My number seven was 1990. 1990. Okay. I have that higher. Uh, So that means I need to tell you my number six, which is 1997. Okay. I have that a touch higher. And my number six is 1996. Cleveland, Ohio, the Gundarina, mm-hmm. 17,000 people were there. Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Mr. Perfect on the call. A lot higher, 96 for you than me. What did you like so much about this one, bud? Um, I don't know. As I watched it, um, and maybe, maybe I ended up ranking it higher than I probably should have, but when, when I watched it, maybe it, maybe I was just in a good mood. Um, I mean, I do have certain critiques. I do think that the boiler room brawl dragged a little bit at times. If they'd cut maybe five minutes off that, then maybe they can actually get freaking Stone Cold Steve Austin on the main show. Because you want to talk about one of the all-time bizarre results. If you go through, like, results in WWF history, and especially, like, pay-per-view dark matches or the free-for-all, as it was known at that time. Steve Austin defeated Yokozuna in a minute 41. <laughs> it's one of the weirdest things you'll ever see. And it was one of those, you know, Yoko slips off the ropes deals, and Austin gets to win that way. Because uh, there is a narrative that Austin didn't catch fire for a while afterwards until, you know, closer to when Brett comes back. But there, there's a raw... From July of 96, and I'm going to do it on my show at some point, where Austin joins commentary, I think, for like a Mark Merrow match. And he is so hilarious on it, like referencing the Lex Express in front of Vince that like he makes Vince so uncomfortable. And it's it's so great because it's it's 1996 Steve Austin, which is is just amazing. Um, I, I know I'm being critical when I have it ranked higher than you but I, there's a lot that i do like on this show the opening match the the heel kick classic between owen hart and savio vega was a uh, pretty good one uh sid winning in i, I want to say an extended squash against the british bulldog i, I always love me some sid you sure do even though oh yeah i mean even though the Jake Roberts, Jerry Lawler feud, uh, it makes me kind of uncomfortable knowing, knowing the full extent of Jake's substance abuse problems, especially, you know, from beyond the mat, which is a couple of years after this show would have taken place. So, you know, Jake was still going to have problems later on. I, I still enjoyed Lawler for what he was bringing to the table from an entertainment standpoint. And even Shawn Michaels, I thought, brought brought it in this one. And I enjoyed his work against in the match against Vader. However, I do have to call him out for something in that match. And I don't know if you remember the exact spot, but he comes off the top rope, and then he just is kind of standing there 
and then he starts yelling at Vader in the middle of the ring where it's really clear because yeah. Vader yep. like Vader messed up or something. And I thought, what a complete asshole yeah, Shawn they, Michaels is. Yeah, they've talked about that on something to wrestle too, uh, where Conrad had called called Sean out for that too. Yeah, that's exactly. a bad moment. Yeah, that's a bad moment. I mean, imagine if you will, Shawn Michaels. Let's let's say he's not a professional wrestler. Let's say he's in, I don't know, a Shakespearean production or, or he's in uh, groundlings or, or or some sort of improv troupe and somebody makes a mistake on stage and you're Shawn Michaels. And instead of continuing along and rolling with it like a true professional would, Shawn Michaels instead openly yells at the person on the stage for a good 10, 15 seconds throwing a temper tantrum. And it's not like this is the only time it happened that year. It happened at Beware of Dog uh, against the British Bulldog as well, where he was pouting for like the whole match when it was an act of God causing the whole power outage thing. And uh, that was actually, it was actually watching that match that prompted my tweet about don't watch Shawn Michaels matches first thing in the morning. Um, I, I actually remember that now. Uh, and for, for all that, uh, my my MVP of SummerSlam '96 is Vader. Damn you! Not, I had him too for not murdering Shawn Michaels immediately after showing him up like that. I mean, this is this is Vader, a guy who had these wars with Stan Hansen, and a guy who, you know, more or less is revered in Japan for his stiff working style. And you have this wiener, this little fake artist, Shawn Michaels. Showing him up in front of a pay-per-view audience, oh, it just makes me absolutely crazy. But it was still the match of the night, so I'm not so biased against Sean that I, I'm not going to give him his due there. I love that match. I, you know, minus Sean's unprofessionalism, which I totally agree with, minus that, it's a great match. And I think Vader, who, you know, being a super heavyweight and, you know, often considered one of the better ones, and, and rest in peace, we've lost him recently, uh, he twenty two fifty eight. I mean, they did a great job. They both worked really hard, I thought, and especially Vader worked really hard in this match. And and I like you, I had it as my match of the night, and I had Vader as my MVP. I thought he just did a great job, great job bumping for Sean. You know, great job. Um, like you said, not not taking that bad moment and escalating it. You know, he was the bigger man in that situation. Uh, which I thought was really good. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed that match. And I think I had it where I had it at eight because outside of that, I mean, there's only eight matches on the card, right? We don't get Stone Cold who really, I mean, I don't want to say he's the biggest star in the company because he's not just yet, but it would have been such a great opportunity to build off of the momentum of, you know, the 316 promo. Um, at King of the Ring, and instead he's in a minute and 52 match on the free-for-all. So I think that's probably why I had it low. I don't mind Owen Hart versus Savio Vega either. I'm a big tag team guy, but this four-way elimination tag team match is a mess. I uh, think I think part of the problem with Austin was he didn't really have a an opponent for for this show because... It, well, he he's a clear heel. I mean, there's there's no you know shades of gray at that point. He can't face Savio because he'd spent all spring facing Savio Vega. He can't face Jake because he already already did him. away with him. Yep. Jake, 
Jake's already paired off with Lawler. I mean, I, I don't really know who you could put him against. In fact, I want to say like the October pay-per-view, he ends up against Triple H in like a where Triple H is subbing for somebody um, at at the last at the last minute. So uh, he he had some he had some weird matches there in '96, but they they should have at least found some way to get him on that show. I mean, that's that's a critique I have. Uh, the Boiler Room Brawl, I like the finish of that, although. Uh, it's solid, just too long, like you said. Yeah, it's a good and, gimmick. It's a solid match. It just went too long. And the way they the way they built up mankind, and this kind of goes into more of 1996 as a whole, because he comes in right after WrestleMania, and he immediately becomes the most the most credible opponent of the Undertaker. In that he's kind of almost on like an even ground with him, in that he's picking up wins against him, like. Like in this match here, so. All right. Well, I had ninety four at eleven, ninety five at ten, ninety three at nine, uh, ninety eight, or excuse me, ninety six at eight, eighty eight at seven, and six was ninety seven. Where are you at? You want to recap yours? Yes, I am. Uh, I had ninety four at eleven, at tenth I have ninety five, ninth ninety three, eighth eighty eight. Seventh, I have 1990. Sixth, I have 1996. And fifth, I have 1997. Which leads us to 1997, correct? Mm-hmm. All right, 1997, East Rutherford, New Jersey, the Meadowlands, uh, the WWF is having a televised event uh, in New Jersey. There was some kind of tax on a tax that mm-hmm. pissed Vince off. And after 89, they did no no TV or pay-per-view from there. And there was a Republican governor, who I can't remember her name. Uh, Christy that, Todd Whitman. Thank you. Christy uh who uh, got rid of the law and, and Vince appreciated it so much uh, that she gets a spot on the show. Uh, where they bring her out and prevent present her uh, with the championship belt, which is the actual championship belt uh, mm-hmm. that's used uh, later in the night. And then I guess, and this is uh, from something to wrestle, I guess they did send her a uh, a women's championship belt later. But that's a pretty interesting um, footnote uh, just about the kind of history with the tax and things like that. Uh, another and, oh, go, go ahead. And it's not even it's not even the weirdest segment on the show. Right, that's where I was going. So go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> the um, what what do they call this? The million dollar. Uh, they always they always return to this well like every ten years where they want to give away like a million dollars and it always goes badly. I don't understand. Well, it's such a disaster because so they have a few people there. But then they also want to have someone from home have a chance to win. And they bring out a list of phone numbers and they just can't get anyone on the line. And then when they finally do get someone on the line, it's clearly a kid and he admits he's not even he's not watching the show. Yeah. So and nobody wins the money. Yeah. So it's just kind of a downer and it's really weird and it takes forever and it's not the best. It, re- it really kind of grinds the show to a halt, uh, except for the fact that 
it's an interesting moment in that you have the the two doofuses out there on the stage, and you have Sonny and Sable side by side, which is not something you would see very often. And both of them and, are smoking hot at the time. Exact. Now, this is one of those you know tests where which which one would you actually pick? And I think on that Pritchard podcast where they talked about SummerSlam '97 fairly recently. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily always agree with Conrad, but he said that Sonny was the most roll tied in the history of roll tied or yes. something to that effect. And I actually watched SummerSlam 97 today also, which, yeah, somehow I watched all these pay-per-views today and <laughs> fit in a full day of work. Wink. And, um, yeah, Sonny, uh, holy God. Um, yeah, looking, looking pretty good and was, uh kind of flirting with uh with the dude there um who the guy who was gonna pick key number 39 or whatever the hell imagine up doing imagine this okay let me set up this scenario for you okay let me see what was the date of this show let me look i think it was august 3rd 97 it was like the earliest in august that they would ever hold SummerSlam. you're you're exactly right okay so august 3rd 1997 you watch this show right August 4th, you get into a car accident and you're in a coma, okay? And you stay in that coma till the 2000s sometime. And you wake up and your mom says to you, Peter, I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's been so sad, but I'm so glad you're back. And because you're back, I have Sonny on Skype and she is going to get nude for you. And basically do anything you ask her. I'll pay the bill. Don't worry, honey. I'll leave. You know, it won't be awkward. You enjoy yourself. You were in a coma. You deserve it. <laughs> Imagine the shock when you see what's looking back at you on Skype. Um, well, you know, if, I, if, I, if I'm in a coma that long, um, I, I'd kind of be grateful for anything thrown my way. True. Uh, but even then... I think I would be able to work one up. Yeah, um, well, yeah, yeah, but I mean, although I I preferred poach to sunny side up, I, I must say. So, but just imagine uh-huh. the the shock that the sunny yeah. from August third ninety seven is now that sunny. Well, you know things things can happen. I mean, uh, you know, there there's any number of celebrities that you could you could point to, but also. The the wrestling business sometimes has a tendency to chew people up and spit them out, and it's not necessarily fair. Now, of course, she also brought some of her problems on herself, which I don't don't really want to walk down that road too much. But uh, you know what? Uh, you know what? Something she looked, she looked good there. Yeah, yeah, she looks beautiful. <laughs> you know, uh, for so far, for a lot of this, I feel like we've talked a lot about things we don't like one thing i like about this show is it kind of gets me to the point where i feel like when we talk about these shows there's more things i get to talk about that i like like i enjoy it's a little long but i do enjoy the mankind hunter hurst helmsley uh cage match there's that sick spot where china just absolutely crushes uh mankind's head with the door yeah um the ken shamrock is a star in that match against Bulldog. Oh my god, that is so amazing. He, the, the reaction he gets when he starts killing every official 
that's around him. I mean, I, I remember the Ultimate Warrior doing the same thing at like the 89 Royal Rumble after the pose down, and he didn't get the reaction that Ken Shamrock got. Now, granted, it's 20,000 people because this was like a record gate and like a huge crowd, even though they're losing in the ratings every week. So you know, I think things are a lot better than they were made out to be at that point, and it took a while for the ratings to catch up. But, oh, my God, yeah, Shamrock, you watch that, and you're like, this guy is going to be the this guy's going to be the world champion within two years. And then and, just two other things I wanted to mention, like the Stone Cold Owen match is awesome until Stone Cold unfortunately gets hurt. We can talk about that in a minute. And the other thing is, is Bret Hart versus Undertaker with Sean as the ref feels like a huge main event again. You know, yeah. where some of these main events, like with Mabel versus Diesel, you know, some of these ones in the in the few years before, they don't feel like main events. Bret Hart versus Undertaker is a main event, and they, it was a great match. I really liked it, and the the spit and the chair spot and all that it was just a great finish. I thought. So what I like about this uh, SummerSlam compared to some of the ones we've talked about is I kind of feel like we're turning the table to where a lot of my comments are going to be things I liked, and there was a lot I liked about this show, and I kind of laid it all out. Yeah, that the the storytelling in that main event is is superb, and I think a lot of that goes to how how great Bret Hart was. It, it might actually be the last great Bret Hart match in the WWF because afterwards, I like I that mean, Patriot match. I think that's a great great match, really. Yeah, I mean, I haven't gone back and watched Ground Zero in in quite a while. Um, I think that's a good match. Watch that again. But not he, as good he, as he this. Got, not as good as this, but it's uh, good. He kind of he kind of got usurped by. I mean, it's almost funny in that Brett would have been better off not winning the title here, and the reason for that is he lost all of his heat to Shawn Michaels. I mean, it's. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. And and the way you could book it because the stipulation was well, if I don't win the title, I'll never wrestle in America again. Is you know, Brett's got nagging injuries, and you just have him off to the side for a while. And let's assume that Vince doesn't go to him and say, oh, I can't afford to pay your contract, which is a load of crap anyway. He just totally. wanted to get out of the, yeah. the long-term commitment because he wanted to go public eventually. Is um, You have Brett win the title at the Survivor Series in 90, where because the whole stipulation is, I can't wrestle in America. And then you can reinstate him because, well, he's the world champion. He's champion. He has yeah. to wrestle in America. So it, it basically becomes a de facto loser-leave town for 90 days, and it allows him to rest up the knee injury that he had. Because remember the whole wheelchair thing from um, from Raw when he screwed up and forgot to cue Shawn Michaels to uh, kick him, uh, super kick him out of the wheelchair before Raw went off the air. You know what's um, another kind of cool stat? Yeah. I'm sorry to cut you there, but another kind of cool stat is this – so SummerSlam, we'll talk about a couple of these later, but so SummerSlam 97, Bret Hart defeats Undertaker to win the world championship. SummerSlam 1991, Bret Hart beats Mr. Perfect to win the Intercontinental Championship. And SummerSlam 1990, the Hart Foundation beat Demolition to win the Tag Championship. So this match here, Bret becomes the first wrestler ever to win each championship at the same pay-per-view, which I think is kind of cool. And not to mention 
in, well, I guess I will mention, in 88, he's challenging for the tag titles. In 89, he's wrestling the tag champions, albeit in a weird non-title right. event. Right. He's the IC champ at 92. He's wrestling for the title of King in 93, for whatever that's worth. 94, he's the world champ. Only in 95 and 96, he's not there, so you really can't count that. Only in 95 is he not really wrestling for any sort of stakes at that event. Uh, I, I do, I would be remiss if I don't at least mention the, the I mean, you had, you had alluded to it, the, the Owen Hart pile driver spot with Austin. Cause it was a really good match up to that point. Yeah. Awesome. And it just makes me wonder because Steve Austin already had neck issues at that point. And the story goes supposedly that Austin thought that Owen was going to drop to his knees and and do the pile driver spot that way. But to me, that doesn't make any sense because can you imagine if somebody had gone out and done the Undertaker's finisher when he's the world champion on 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 the same show? Right in the main event. I mean, not that Undertaker was going to be doing the tombstone later, but that is clearly his finisher and Owen Hart, as well-liked as he might have been and well-respected, he cannot go out there and do the Undertaker's finisher in the the match before or two matches before Undertaker's match. So he does the pile driver the other way, which is more dangerous. But also the fact that the, the way they do, do the spot with the reversals and all that just adds another element of something can go wrong here. And I know what they were going for. They were going for a close two count if he if he had gone for the cover. But because of Austin's neck injuries, they should have just found another path to get to get to that spot. It's like one of the two things in Bret or Owen Hart's wrestling career. I just wish didn't happen. Right? Yeah. Like you just wish somehow this didn't happen, and you just wish somehow, obviously, ninety nine didn't happen. Uh, I have yeah. Bret Hart versus Undertaker as the best match, and I gave the MVP to Stone Cold Steve Austin for two reasons. One, that match was awesome up until that point, and two, just because I know it's the worst roll-up in history, but for him to just kind of muster the strength to at least do that much is badass. So I gave Stone Cold the MVP. Dude had a bruised spinal cord, which I don't want to ever find out what that kind of injury is like. So I actually gave him the MVP as well. Uh, actually, one thing that's sad about SummerSlam 97 is it's one of the few times that you see Brian Pillman in a singles match, and that finish is just completely botched to hell with the sunset flip. And they try to make lemons out of the lemonade at the end, but um, it was kind of sad to see. As I said, I was watching it earlier. Uh, yeah, the match of the night is Bret and Undertaker. It's one of the best storytelling SummerSlam main events in the whole history of the event in 30 years. All right, we have covered six SummerSlams. We have five SummerSlams left, uh, the five best SummerSlams in both of our minds, I believe, and um, we got to do that. So let's take a break. Uh, we're going to play some plugs, I think, and, mm-hmm. uh, and then we're going to be back, and we will close this baby out. So... You all good, Pete? Yep. All right, we'll be right back. 
Place Your Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFination.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceFination Wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, along with Main Event, Survey Says, The Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcasts, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBM Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead. As well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans. With the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows, plus others, available at PlaceFation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceFation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceFation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. We are back. One more segment. It is the Adams Division Podcast SummerSlam Spectacular. We are ranking all of the SummerSlams from 1988 to 1998. We got six down, five to go. Quickly, though, uh, Peter and I selfishly like to plug our other projects. I, of course, host the Sportscasters Podcast, once named in 2014, one of the best sportscasts in the world by Richard Deitch and Sports Illustrated, although I think they were only counting sports podcasts. Uh, I'm pretty positive they were only counting sports podcasts. Uh, although I will say about that, Peter, still the only independent podcast ever mentioned in the history of that award. Uh, Boy, you you would really die if uh, if Deitch ever mentioned me, if uh, if it was ever in the uh, athletic. No, I'd be, happy, ha- I'd be happy I, for I, you. I'd be glad for yeah. you to, to get it. You're my boy, you know? Now, if, like, say, JT Rosario got it, then I'd be pissed. <laughs> it's Rosero. Ah, whatever. It's Rosero. Him and his shit takes. I can't <laughs> I can't be bothered to get this, this, his name right. All his, all, all, everything he says is shit. Uh, anyway, um, the Sportscasters podcast can be heard weekly. Again, finally, I'm back on the, back on the horse weekly. Um, last week, I had... People I don't remember. This week I have Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders and Matt Yoder from Awful Announcing. Matthew Barry is going to be on soon uh, as long as ESPN PR holds their word, which they keep promising me they are. Um, so we got a lot of good stuff. Joe Buck is also coming on before the start of the season. Uh, Sportscasters is at sports underscore casters on Twitter. 
Uh, the SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. And, of course, iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you find podcasts. And if for some reason you're trying to listen to it somewhere and it's not there, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and we will be able to hook it up. Also, our book club has some really cool books coming up. Uh, Jeff Perlman's book about the USFL. I'm going to have a copy of that to give away. And there's a book called The Last Days of Letterman, uh, which I'm really excited about. And it's going to be coming out in October, I believe. And I'm going to have a copy of that to give away as well. So some cool things coming up in the book club. And I'm booking my ass off right now, uh, trying to get everyone I can um, to talk about football and college football. Oh, last week's podcast, I had Max Olsen from The Athletic. And we went deep into... Last Chance You, where I continually called the coach of the team a crazy person, and then he started following me on Twitter, and now I'm really nervous that he's going to listen and hear me call him a crazy person and come for me. Um, so let's pray that doesn't happen. Peter, what do you got, buddy? Oh, college, college football is so far outside my realm. Like I'll watch the occasional Notre Dame game and in Michigan at this, at this point. Uh, I don't know too much about it, but... Greetings from Allentown. You can listen on my feed or on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Weekly episodic wrestling television. Every Thursday, which I'm proud to say, uh, as of last week, I think that's 78 consecutive... No, no, wait. It, it, well, it's 78 consecutive weeks. There was one week where I was late and the show came out on Friday, which uh, I look back on that and I'm actually kind of ashamed that that happened because it... Would have been a nice streak to have, but you can count on me every Thursday. Like this week, I am going to be looking at the AWA in 1989, which before you roll your eyes, this is this is a battle royal to determine their next quote-unquote world heavyweight champion. And some of the dudes that are going for this title are, um, let's just say, maybe not of world championship caliber, so... <laughs> Shall see how it breaks down. AWA from the ESPN show is what that'll be next Thursday. What do you predict? Or this Thursday. What do you predict is next for the Adams Division podcast? I have an idea that I'm going to try to talk you into doing an NHL preview podcast with me for our next episode. That's possible. That's very possible. Although, uh, I was going to say earlier, since we did a WrestleMania one and then a SummerSlam one, you would have to think that a Survivor Series 87 to 98 would have to be in the offing at some point. That's a lock. Yeah, that's a lock, I would say. Yeah. And also, um, I would look look to even do a a pay-per-view, just sort of a pay-per-view overview show at some point. Um I would do a show like ECW Heat Wave 98, but basically the entire program would be me talking about attending the event and just how weird it was that I was actually at that event. Tony Schiavone, <laughs> Tony Schiavone just did that one. Did you listen to that? I ne- I know I need to listen to that one because I'm, I'm way behind on the Schiavone one because it's kind of a... That show's a little weird in that it's become a bit of a watch-along. Yeah, that's all it is. Really have to, yeah. You don't really have to watch to kind of laugh at what he's getting at i mean the halloween havoc 95 one that they did a long time ago was so hilarious i was that was 
during the period. I, I remember when it was because there was all these trees down in my backyard, and I'm like, I, I don't have a chainsaw, so I'm hand sawing through like a, like a lot of the branches and stuff, and I had to stop because I was convulsing in laughter from <laughs> hearing Tony Schiavone work blue when you're not used to it. Uh, it can be a little jarring. Now, if you listen to the podcast every week and he's like that all the time, well, I'm sure it probably gets old after a while. He's like the Bob Saget of wrestling. Yeah. Right? Like, we thought I mean, he was I, one thing, and then you see him in this other thing, and it's like, whoa. <laughs> he is I mean, not, I, I take, not that. I, I take pride in working clean on, on my podcast, but then somebody pointed out to me, it's like, wait a minute. You're saying that you work clean and then like within like a two minute span on your podcast, you make reference to child molestation, porn stars and illicit drug use. And you did have your F-bomb. Yeah. You had your F-bomb rant that one time, too. Uh, yes. Yes, I did. (laughs) Uh, But I I did tell the kids to put on earmuffs because I (laughs) what I always think of is the uh, the 36 year old dad who's taking his kids to daycare or picking his kids up from daycare or whatever. And he has on my podcast in the car and it doesn't really make a lot of sense for me to be F bombing everything. It's not because I, it's not because I want to be all pious or anything like that. It's just that, uh, it's just kind of a conscious decision I make, you know, with that person in mind. Yeah. I think on my show, it's like if swearing happens, it happens, but it only happens, you know, every so once in a while. However, on the Adams Division podcast, I work edgier. Yes. Now I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go totally blue and start talking about pornography. But right. you, know, uh, you know, I will not say cunt. <laughs> oh no! Oh. All right. Back to the business right. at hand. If you're satisfied with your plugs. Yes. Okay. Number five. I had 1998. Okay, I have that much higher. Okay. Uh, what do you have for number at- five? At number five, uh, actually, at number five, I had 1997, which we just talked about. Um, so what did you have at number four? 1990. Okay, so why don't we land there because that I had that at number seven. Okay. So um, a mild disconnect. A lot of people like this show, and I guess it's okay. Um, I, I, I had seen somebody, and I, I believe it was Chad Campbell, of a place to be nation who doesn't really like this show at all. And in fact, ranked it very low. In fact, if he was joining us on this podcast, I think he would have it in his bottom three. Now uh, we'll wait till I share some of the ones that we have. It doesn't do well. Yeah. I mean, most people tend to, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this one is more divisive than I had thought because, there's some stuff that I really like on it, and there's some stuff that I that I that I hate. Well, let me set uh, it up. Let me set it yeah. up. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the Spectrum, nineteen thousand three hundred and four people. Vince McMahon is on play-by-play, and the Hot Rod is yeah. on color. For better or worse. For better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like this show. I, you know, ninety and ninety-one. Both have like the running gag through it. Like so in this one it's Sapphire and her whereabouts. And then ninety one it, it's way better, the whole Mountie thing, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh but there's something about this show that it has so much 
I can watch it. Like the rewatchable nature of this show is just so high to me. Um, man, I just I love the matches. I really, really, really think that the the way that they do power and glory versus the rockers in the beginning. Oh my god! With the knee spot, oh. it's so awesome. It just gets it off to such a hot start. Um, I'm not crazy about the Texas Tornado uh, beating Mr. Perfect. Sherry, Sherry does an incredible job in the ring selling the Sapphire Angle with the countdown and throwing the mic down. I think that that's awesome. And then some of the goofiness backstage with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Like, we're, we're, we're looking for Dusty or whatever he says, which used to be. <laughs> that, that was that was an old school gag when uh, Place to Be Nation was just an infant uh, in the early episodes. If you listen to... Like episode, what they're getting close to five hundred. If you listen to like twenty three, uh, that's something that Justin teases Scott with all the time. The tag team match is one of my favorite matches of all time. Uh, we can talk about that more in a minute. Yeah. Um, I was super hot as a kid on the earthquake and Hogan thing. You know, I was all in sending the uh, sending the cards, and I liked the cage match. They kept it short. They didn't go too long. I like this show a lot. Maybe I'm out on, a, on an island. Um, I kind of laid a bunch out there for you. What do you like? What do you not like? Well, before I get into that, let me ask. Because you, if, if you did send a card for Hulk Hogan, did you mysteriously get a WWF catalog shortly oh, yeah. thereafter? Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So and I may or may not have gotten a Christmas gift out of it then as well. Oh, well, well played. Yep. Shawn Michaels, that little fake artist, in the words of Colin Campbell, phony fake artist, as if he's the first guy ever who's had a knee injury in the history of professional wrestling. Like, oh, he can't work. Like, like he's the dynamite kid and he's crippled. Right, he needs to be carried to the ring like dynamite. Yeah. Like, you can't can't go in and, and do, like, you know, a minute of work in the ring. No, we have to injure you right beforehand. Like... But it's awesome. They do it awesome, though. Oh, my! let me tell you something, okay? I don't mean to sound like a heel promo here, but let me tell you something. Um, there, that Philadelphia crowd, with them cheering power and glory over the Rockers, is maybe the finest moment in the history of the city of brotherly love since 1776. <laughs> and I am completely serious in that. I'm talking... Two Flyers Stanley Cups that actually happened, 76ers winning the title, all other things that have happened in the city dating back over 200 years. And that is certainly one of their fine, one of their finest moments. Yeah, the Texas Tornado thing was such a huge blunder. Yeah, that I mean, sucked. If, if anything, it had been so much better to just let him chase for a while. Like, don't have him lose clean, but let him chase perfect and see if he – See if he can actually keep his head on straight for a while. But Vince, he just always had a soft spot for the Von Erics and, and, and Kerry in particular, I think, because, you know, he, he loved the body for. Now, Bobby bitching about it after is awesome, though. Yeah. Oh, Heenan promos after title losses. So good. Are, are, oh, always great. Um, one thing you may not know about the show is and this people talk about how come we never got the proper Tito Santana versus Rick Martel blow off on pay-per-view and originally it was supposed to happen on this show 
and I was watching one of the weekly TVs, and they canceled the match by saying, oh, yeah, Rick Martel has a modeling engagement in Europe, and he won't be able to make the show. And I thought, okay, well, that's pretty ingenious, but uh, it, it's also the kind of thing that people would forget because it was on weekly TV two or three weeks before. Wasn't the, uh, wasn't the reality the his wife was sick, or am I wrong about that? That was earlier in 88. When oh, okay. The longer sabbatical, I All think. Right. He might have had an injury or something. Okay. Because it doesn't really make sense because then they never bring it up again. Like he j- he just kind of moves on to Jake uh, after after SummerSlam. Really, the Hearts Demolition match is uh, it's got a great finish. It's awesome. The, all the screwery with the Legion of Doom, but that makes sense because you want to set up that feud. Although they didn't pay it off, right? You should you should have just had LOD versus Demolition for the titles. Maybe not at SummerSlam, but at some point down the road, like maybe at Survivor Series Showdown or something like that. Uh, um, uh, one thing I did not like about that match, well, actually, I really liked the first fall how they beat Brett with their finisher. I thought that that was really strong. However, I think. They should have actually let the pinfall happen with the second fall. Right, instead of crush. Like yeah. The, the DQ finish, because then it just raises confusion because they always change the rules back and forth of, well, you can't, the title can't change hands because one of the falls was a DQ. That, that rules seem to go in all different directions depending on what mood they were in. Right, Saturday uh, night's main event, Heart Foundation and Bulldogs. Bulldogs won yep. two falls to zero, but one of them was a DQ. Remember Jesse going, ha ha, but the titles don't change hands. So, yep. yeah, and, I agree. And that I want to say it happened once in 88, and and uh, it, it, in 89, the Brainbusters win the title, even though one of the falls was a DQ. So, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not like they were all out to protect demolition at that point anyway, because they phased them down so rapidly with the LOD feud. Uh, I don't really know what was going on. Uh, now, for the, the dusty angle. Hold on, hold certainly... on, hold on. Before yeah. you go past that match, can I, can I talk about it for a second? Because it's one of my yeah. favorite. Okay. First of all, both promos are awesome uh, before it. Demolition, talking about which member of Demolition was going to be in and which member was going to be out. And Sean Mooney's great in it where he's like, you know, well, I thought it would be, you know, the two experienced members of Demolition. Uh, well, he actually says that with the hearts, but just so so good. So good. They play off the three-person guy in the promos before. So good. All right. So I have a quick story, too, about this promo that the Heart Foundation give. So the Heart Foundation, Demolition's going to the ring. They go back into the locker room. They're talking to the Heart Foundation. And, you know, they're talking about how they thought it was going to be the two experienced members. They're surprised. They go on. They talk. And at the end, Brett says something about, like, like the Phil Collins song says, you know, we're two hearts beating as one. And it's so cool, right? So mm-hmm. fast forward years later, okay, years later. Years and years. So that was 1990. So fast forward to 2016. Um, June of 2016. Early June. My wife is nine months pregnant. And I am having a lot of trouble sleeping. Because every time she moves, I think she's going into labor. 
You know, like every yeah. time in the bed she moves, I'm like, oh, oh, the baby's coming. You know, like I'm an, I'm an, I'm a mess. So one night she's tossing and turning, and I can't sleep. So I go into the other room and I open the iPad and I turn on the network and I decide to watch SummerSlam '90. You know, it's the summer, so maybe I'm just in the mood to watch SummerSlams, whatever. And I'm watching this one, and I see that promo, and I'm like, what? Phil, what you know? Like, what is he talking? Like, I actually start to think about it. Like, what Phil Phil Collins songs even talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, oh yeah, he's got a song called Two Hearts. It's probably that. So I listen to Two Hearts, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of a catchy song. And I'm reading about it. It's it's you know, it was for a movie that he was in, and he kind of didn't want to put it in the movie because he thought he was going to be a great actor, and he didn't want his his music. And I'm listening to this song, and I'm just like. Man, I like this song. So anyway, so a couple weeks later, my daughter's born. And um, uh, one thing that me and my wife did when my daughter was born is we kind of we kind of split up. We kind of, to make sure we could sleep, we kind of split up and took shifts. And I would often have my daughter in the middle of the night. My wife would sleep during the middle of the night. And um, we were, uh, Paula and I were just hanging out. And... Um, she was starting to get a little whiny and I had like about another hour before it was time to wake Tammy up. And it was the first time I said, oh, I should play Paula some music. So the first song I went to is this song called Around the Bend by Pearl Jam, which is a song that Eddie Vedder wrote for Jack Iron's son. And it's kind of a lullaby basically. So, you know, I play this song and I'm kind of singing it to her. It's kind of a sweet daddy-daughter moment, and we finish it. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. That's something I've wanted to do like since 1996, the first time I heard that song. That was so cool. And then the next thing I do is Two Hearts. And I play that, and I'm singing Two Hearts to her. And she lit up, dude. She's like, I don't know, at this point, she's maybe a month old. And like, mm-hmm. she lit up, and she's just smiling and laughing, and she loved it. And like, still to this day, like we sing two hearts together. It's like our song. And anytime she wears anything with a heart on it, she always says, daddy, two hearts, daddy, two hearts. And, um, it's just kind of our thing. And it all kind of grew from this Bret Hart promo, which is going to be really weird when I tell her, like when she's like 13 and she's like, dad, why is two hearts like our song? And I'm like, well, honey, (laughs) uh, Bret Hart gave this promo. So maybe that was a long, um, a long story that maybe nobody cares about, but well, I I, I wasn't sure where you were going to go with that because the first two songs that I think of is Two Hearts" by Springsteen, which is on the River album. But even more than that, Two Hearts" beat is one by U two, which is off the War album, which the uh, the album cover with the uh, uh, spooky looking kid is actually staring at me from my wall right now as I have the vinyl album hanging up. Um, but, uh, what I, what I wanted to say about, well, uh, uh, Dusty's promos on this show, and I actually, he, he's, he's the MVP of the show for me, but I want to talk about Piper because it was so close to this show that he became the color guy on superstars and he had experience. He, he did commentary in Georgia. Right. Like Cause 80, Jesse just, just leaves, right. Just barely misses this show. Yeah, and it's one of those things where Jesse is so 
obstinate that he's like, you know what? Screw you. I'm not even going to stick around and take the pay-per-view payoff. And there was a couple of times where I really, uh, well, okay. So in the Hogan match with earthquake, is it just me or does Piper all of a sudden decide to become a heel color commentator? Totally. During much of that? Totally. Yep. Uh, where he, he's just really doubting Hogan the entire time after being like, baby face color guy and then the warrior match which i i don't like i don't like the match with rude i i just thought it was fait accompli they were selling it based on a win that rude had at wrestlemania that was due to obvious fuckery by heen and all that and piper during that match is so obnoxious like it he he makes that match even worse because he turns into like the scottish art art donovan by like, <laughs> what does that mean when Warrior keeps putting his hands to this guy? Now, granted, you could look at Ultimate Warrior or listen to him and say, what does that mean pretty much at all times? But he kept doing it, and it, it was distracting me as I was as I was watching it. So that that one was bad. Um, but uh, the the Dusty Rhodes story through this uh, that uh, I what was the line I I gave her. I gave her my heart and she repaid me in scorn or something like that. Maybe I'm getting it crossed up with say anything. <laughs> she gave me a pen. Um, but that, that, that whole line, like when are you going to get mad, big dust? Like, Oh, that that's, that's dusty's best serious promo that he did in the WWF. And he wasn't allowed to do a lot of serious stuff because they just made him into a silly character. And that's fine because he killed he did, it. He killed it. He did. He did the silly stuff so great. Like yeah. doo doo is good for me, and doo doo is good for you. Um, but I mean, the way the way he sold this, you'd never know that he was a guy like who was eventually going to be on his way out in like four or five months, because the, the the promo is so good. He really cares for Sapphire for whatever reason. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they did such a great job, kind of like using that thread through the whole show, kind of stretching it out. And I never got tired of it. And I kind of just really enjoyed it. Best match. I had demolition versus heart foundation. Obviously it's one of my favorite matches of all time. And for MVP, I picked the heart foundation. Um, their last, their last time winning the title, you know, as much as it's kind of the end for, uh, for demolition here, it's sort of the end for the heart foundation as a tag team, just, just the anvil and, and Brett as well, sort of too. So, yeah, and as I said, Dusty is my MVP, even though his match lasts two minutes and he gets rolled up. Like, right? Well, actually, gets hit with a uh, hit with, uh, with the purse. purse. Yeah, the is, yeah. Purse. And then then he runs after uh, the DiBiase limo. But uh, for for his promo work on this show, I'm giving him the MVP for SummerSlam '90 and the best match. While I could shine a light on the hearts and demolition, and while it is probably the best match, I'm going to show some love for Hulk Hogan versus Earthquake because it really made Quake look like a monster. Yeah, and it really was very, well inter- very interesting how Hogan winning by countout on a pay per view, not something that's usually Hogan with the leg drop win clean, and that is how things are done. But instead, we do the countout loss, which, by the way, slamming him onto a table. Uh, in 1990, that was not something you would see very often, but that, that's why that house show program actually did pretty well 
Hogan and Earthquake. Quick note, in 2009, I went to the last ever event at the Spectrum. Uh, it was a Pearl Jam concert. They actually played four the last four events. They played four shows, two during the week and yes. two on the weekend. I went to the two weekend shows. So the last show was all, there was also a World Series game across the street, which was really cool. It was like a great night to be in Philadelphia, you know. And where I was sitting, right above me, was uh, uh, the owner of the um, of the of the Flyers that passed away recently. Helped me out with his name. Ed Snyder. Ed Snyder. Thank you. He was right behind me, and um, they did this video before Pearl Jam took the stage. A pretty long, like a pretty cool video of all the events. Uh, in the history of the spectrum, and SummerSlam made it. I was pumped. Oh wow! Yeah, I was super pumped. Nice. I, so I told my buddy when we were watching it when it started. I'm like, oh, I wonder if SummerSlam will make it, and it did. So, whatever. That amazing Pearl Jam show that night too. They played Bugs, uh, the first and only time they ever did it. They also played a song called "Out of My Mind," which is a B side on the "Not for You" single because someone donated ten thousand dollars to a charity that Eddie Vedder wanted donated. And they also came out dressed like those guys that have those funny hats and they have that hit. What the hell? Oh, son of a bitch. I'll look it up um, in a second. I'll, I'll figure it out in a second. But, um, yeah, great Pearl Jam show. Great weekend of Pearl Jam if you're a fan at all. Uh, there's a box set of the four shows uh, that you can get, and they're all fantastic. It's a great run. Um, but, yeah, SummerSlam 90, divisive one. I like it. I know a lot of people don't. All right, where does that leave us? Do you got to tell me what your next one was, or do I have to tell you? My 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 number four was nineteen ninety two. Okay, my, I have that higher, but that's my number three. So we will talk about nineteen ninety two. Mm-hmm. London, England, Wembley Stadium, eighty thousand three hundred and fifty five people. Vince McMahon and Bobby Heenan on the call. This is a cool show, man. It just visually, it's awesome. It looks so awesome. Yeah, for a show that took place when the product was by any measure cold, this this is really good. And it always makes me wonder why you don't see more like why they don't do like a big pay-per-view in a European stadium like this because this went over like Gangbusters. I don't know if it's taxes or well, you know what I think. What it is, the dirty secret might be is that this actually happened on August 29th, but didn't yep. air here until August 31st. So that might be the reason is because they, like, as you know, this was one day before my 12th birthday. So as a, a just barely 12 year old, I had no idea that this had happened. You know, two days before, and you could ne- you could never pull that off again. So, I mean, could you well, see them doing SummerSlam? I mean, what time? What, so, there's six hours ahead usually, right, London? So, yeah, here, that, and that's my, that's my case for this, is if you, hold, if you hold SummerSlam in London and you started at 6 o'clock or even, even 7 o'clock local time, because I know they are fond of running a four-hour show now, it's at 2 o'clock on the East Coast, I think it is. It's either five or six hours, and then eleven on on the West Coast, and you you could make it a daytime thing. Like I'd be much more likely to watch a pay per view live if it was during the day on 
on, on a Sunday. A, on, right. on a Sunday. Uh, of course, it being in the summer, though, you know, you got to give up a you got to give up a sunny day. And, you know, with with you living in the Buffalo area, me living in the Boston area, you know, sometimes warm days are, are to be cherished and you're supposed to go to minor league baseball games uh or at least that's that, right that's or the my county opinion. fair or whatever's going on that weekend of that summer in your city but point is um i i do think that the fans over there should get a little bit more love and i would certainly love more pay-per-views uh during during the daytime i mean it, SummerSlam seems to be the most obvious one to have but apparently they don't you know they don't want to move it out of Brooklyn. There was nothing on this show that I disliked so much that I'm like, oh, well, th- this was terrible. I mean, uh, uh, somebody might point, well, even Undertaker versus Kamala, and I would say, yeah, I have a soft spot for Kamala. I'll, I'll always. And it's only I'll three minutes. Let, they didn't overdo yeah. it. You know, it's only three minutes. Yeah. yeah, just saving it for saving it for later down the road. Um, the British Bulldog promo. Now, I was watching SummerSlam 92. Uh, this was one of my late night viewings. I think it was about 1230 in the morning. And the British Bulldog comes on to do his pre-match promo. And I- I'm tired. And I might have had a beer or four. <laughs> and I'm like, that guy That guy is not right. There's, there's something wrong with him. And as we know now... You know, Bulldog was not exactly in a great state of mind anyway, at least if you believe Brett's book, which I, I do. do yeah. I don't think I don't think he has any score to settle with a guy who had been dead for a couple of years before that book came out. And by all and, accounts, someone he loves. I mean, it's not like yeah. someone he's got a axe to grind with. Although, given the things that went on with uh, Bulldog and his sister, uh, th- there might be some. Uh, eh, I don't. I don't really want to get into right. that. Right, maybe, but who knows? That match. That match is is so great. It's it's the supreme carry job of all time because the Bulldog was basically like a cadaver out there. Can I ask and, you a question? Yeah, is it a five star match for you? I actually wrote in my notes, I put five stars question mark, maybe not, but it's a cadaver. Okay, I, so it's five I, stars I, for me. I'll give it five stars. Yeah, I mean, the the crowd, the reaction at the end. It's a great, it's a finish. great finish. Yep. Uh, the, as Brett calls, the Leo Burke finish for that match. Uh, but there's certainly more to that show than, than just that. It's also interesting that the IC title match, because obviously because of Bulldog, is main eventing uh the sean versus rick martell thing is a lot of fun yep sherry's great sherry's great yes great in it uh she's she's magnificent uh the the flair angle and people you know always point to the show and say why is rick flair not wrestling on this show to which i would say who would you have him wrestle would you have him wrestle savage and win the title i mean you could you could have done that here i guess but then what do you do with warrior this kind of a trickle down thing so they wanted want to do the rematch with savage and warrior and of course it's a good match because i think they had good good chemistry with each other it's certainly not the wrestlemania 7 match because they can't tell the same story right but adding that flair element with mr perfect makes sense in that flair knows that he's getting a title shot down the road and he wants to injure savage but injure him in such a way that he loses by count out 
so that he'll still have the title. And then Flair takes advantage of the compromised leg in the infamous match that Vince made them do over again <laughs> at like a taping, which had to have been like the most confusing thing ever for people in the audience. But uh, I don't really want to get into that. So, yeah, a fun show all around. You know what I really liked, which I didn't know I liked, was the Legion of Doom Money, Inc. match because I always thought I hated it because of that dumb puppet. But, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like in my head forever, I'm like, oh, my God, that puppet, that was so stupid. That match sucks. But then when I was rewatching it for this, of course, the puppet came out, and I'm like, oh, my God, what were they thinking? But I like that match. It's a pretty cool match. I thought that IRS... And and the Legion of Doom had like good chemistry, and that was a really cool tag match and a really smart way to start the show. I I really enjoyed that. More le- and it's more or less the last time you see Hawk in the WWF for like four and a half years, right? Because after this show, he like runs off with a biker gang or something. Yeah, he does. And who replaces him temporarily as Animal's tag team partner is Crush. <laughs> Kona Crush becomes a de facto Legion of Doom member after becoming a third demolition guy a couple of years before. Amazing. They should have just kept doing that. Like, they should have... The Hart Foundation, Crush, and Bret Hart. You know? The Rougeau brothers. As I said on on the last greetings from Allentown, I wish that uh, Crush could have become either a substitute member or the third member of the Powers of Pain. So he could have completed, like, the triad of uh, face teams exactly and and then ironically crush defeats repo man in this show so there's a demolition demolition explodes (laughs) demolition match but yeah i really like this i like uh you know warrior versus savage is good obviously not as good as their mania match but who cares that there's no reason necessarily to compare them other than it's because it's just natural to um but the main event is so awesome uh it's five stars for me bret hart does such a great job. I had him as the MVP for sure. Um, yep, and yep, and I had that as the best match. So, 1992 was my number three. What was yours? My number three was 1989. Okay, so we're gonna get to that one in a minute because I have that higher. Um, mm-hmm. I have number two. I have 89. Uh, but for some reason, you want to talk about 98 first, correct? Yes. Okay. How about we'll yeah, do this? Yeah, because we just uh, – yeah, I have that at number two. So Okay. here I'm going to give my top five, and you give your top five, and then we'll talk about the last three. How about that? Yeah. Okay. So at number five, I had 1998. At number four, I had 1990. At number three, I had 1992. At number two, I had 1989. And at number one, I had 1991. Number five, I had 97. Number four, I had 92. Number three, I had 1989. Number two, at second, I had 98. And at number one, I also had 1991. Okay. So let's talk about the last three, and we'll start with 1998. New York, New York, Madison Square Garden, 21,588. And the classic team of Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler were on the call. What do you got? You had this one higher than me, so lay it out. Well, as time goes along, I I sour on the quote-unquote 
attitude era a lot more like just it just doesn't like i don't i don't feel at all the way i did in the moment and uh, uh, it's obvious it's because i'm not a 19 year old kid right. anymore right that's but exactly look, right even looking back to that i mean it it has its advantages its natural advantages from the business being hot at the time it's taking place in madison square garden Put that aside for a second. The whole time period from WrestleMania 14 through SummerSlam 98 is one of my favorite periods in the WWF. Now, you wouldn't know it if you listen to my show because I've never done the show on WWF 1998. But that's mostly because they're not readily available. It's all two-hour Raw. And I generally I haven't done a two-hour, a full two-hour show at all just just for time constraints i mean you know how, how many how can i do that and go off on a tangent uh, about you know baseball if uh, <laughs> if i'm doing that but all this i mean this show has all the all the elements that i'm looking for because i just love the weekly tv during that period so the build is certainly there I mean, like the the three months of TV leading up to this, you get the Highway to Hell song by ACDC building up that Austin Undertaker match, which, as we said, it, it's something that screams main event. Like Incredible some of the poster, that, too. Yep. The poster is so yes. good. So yeah. good. Um, the, the Rock becomes a made man forever, and to a lesser extent, Triple H, but Triple H got hurt during this match so you don't see him for a while afterwards but the rock basically becomes this force of nature over the next couple of months where the crowd turns him baby face for a little while at least in a de facto fashion before he gets the world title at the survivor series which is something that they had to do which good Remember when they didn't have to wait until WrestleMania to quote unquote crown guys as as champions who were going to be you know franchise players? Um, it, it, it felt like yeah, you, you, when it's right, it's right. It, it's, it's, also, you know what else was right? Jeff Jarrett cutting off that ridiculous hair hairdo during <laughs> SummerSlam. I I am a huge fan of haircut matches. Which you'd never know because I'm a wrestling fan in the Northeast and you know, WWF. It's a very southern thing, right? Yeah, it's yeah. not a hair, not a haircut territory. Because Vince doesn't having... like him for some reason, according to Pritchard. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah, and even though they had a guy Beefcake who was that was his gimmick, doing a de facto haircut match every single night, uh, more or less. And uh, but uh, it was the best thing for Jeff Jarrett's career to shave those locks off because he just looked like this relic from the 80s with the with the flowing locks. and then you had something nice and different with the owen hart ken shamrock uh lion's den match which was actually a rematch of the uh dungeon match from uh fully loaded the month before and i really like both those matches i like the dungeon match a little bit more but uh, both of them are really good and uh it, believe it or not, I consider it to also have some comedic aspects, too, because when they do an Irish whip in the octagon, it just makes me laugh so hard when I see that because they, they still do the thing where Owen 
Owen gets Irish whipped into the side of the cage and he turns his back and bounces back off the cage and runs back towards Shamrock. Like, oh, this is so great. I love professional wrestling so much. And there are some favorites also on this show, too. I mean, the best European champion there ever was, D'Lo Brown. Uh, I don't think there should be any debate about that. And this is all, and this will probably be more controversial. My favorite version of Edge ever was the weird loner dude who came out of the crowd, Edge, who randomly teams with Sable. Right. I mean, think about think about that team and how just uh, Edge and Sable versus, what was it, Mark Marrow and, and Jackie? Yep, you got it. And that one, yeah. And Edge is like, he's like this long-lost pal to Sable. And then at the end of the match, instead of being like, hey, uh, you want to go out and get a steak dinner or something? Like, no, he just goes back through the crowd. I love, I love that edge. The fact that he, the fact that he did that, it was, it was magnificent. And the main event, uh, it, it was certainly not a perfect match, but it certainly had an epic feel to it between me, Austin and Undertaker. Let me ask you this: What was your favorite match, and why was it the Oddities match? <laughs> you know what? Um, <laughs> when I rewatched SummerSlam '98, I have no recollection of watching the Oddities match, <laughs> even though I don't have a problem with them per se. Other than, um, I don't know. Everybody thinks I hate George Steele because I always trash him on, on my show, or I, I'm always like, "Why? Why does he get so?" I don't hate George Steele as much as other people do. Now, help, and the, help me remember why weren't the Howard Stern people here, or were they? Um, like wasn't Beetlejuice and Nicole Bass and like a few other like whack packers part of the oddities, but they're not here at this, right? Well, I don't, I don't think Nicole Bass was because Nicole Bass was at Heat Wave '98 okay. for ECW only a couple weeks before this. Beetlejuice yeah. definitely was a part of it because I remember him being on WWE TV. I think I, I did. He turn up on WCW television. I, I don't know. I, you get to a certain point in WCW, and I, I just can't remember anything. But um, not yeah, when I re- when I rewatched it, I I think I just I think I just blanked. I, I think I might have gone and taken a whiz, and by the time I got <laughs> back, it was, it was already over. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to bother rewinding it. It's kind of like I think on the '95 show, I think I slept through two matches, and I just kind of shrugged my shoulder, and I was I was like. Oh, I missed the tag team title match. No big loss or anything like that. But this is this is a pretty great show from start to finish. I have I, Triple it, H Rock as best match. What did you have? Oh, without question because of what it meant in in terms of making both those guys especially the Rock. I mean, I have a I actually bought a VHS tape at an ECW show that was called the best of the rock, the people's compilation. And it has that match on there, which is kind of what I, what I bought it for. And the rock is the MVP of this show. If I said, if I said four and a half stars, would you say higher or lower? Um, I, I will go four and a half with that. And it was, it was nice to see a rock match where the crowd actually turned to cheer for him. Because it gets so used later on, him against Hogan and him against Austin at um, at WrestleMania uh, 17, where the crowd turns against Rocky and, and goes one-sided for the other guy. 
And so it was very, nice to see them go for him a this ver- time. A very famous and well-received story about why I wasn't at that Rocky Hogan match on the last Adams division. Ah, uh, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had ACDC as the MVP. I know that seems kind of goofy, but one of the things that made this show so great was the build, kind of like you said, the weekly TV. You know, I love the poster, and I just think that never has music – well, maybe – it has that. I don't want to exaggerate, but what a great way! What a it's just a perfect, perfect song um, for a main event of the Undertaker versus Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, easily, I could say The Rock. I mean, that's fine too. I was kind of being a little bit facetious by saying ACDC, but I just wanted to. I put that down so I could make the point that they couldn't have picked a better song, and I'm glad Vince paid whatever it is he had to pay to clear it. Um, right, and and to a lot of wrestling fans on the East Coast at that time, uh, although I guess a little bit before that, hearing Highway to Hell and at a wrestling event meant that a parade of Dudleys was going to start walking from the back because that was their <laughs> song in ECW. Right. Yep. I remember singing it at many shows. That was so awesome at those ECW shows, right, when you'd be able to like sing these songs like, you know, Van Dam had respect, right? Or walk, excuse me, by Pantera. Yeah. And um, uh, what Taz had, War Machine by Kiss. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, Enter Sandman for Sandman. That was so great. Those shows are so fun back in the day. Uh, I struggled, Peter, for hours and hours and days and days as we prepared for this. Right on the aisle. What was that? What sa- seeing the Sandman's entrance live at an ECW show at the Wonderland Greyhound Park in Revere was so great because I was right on the aisle. So you you always think of in the ECW intro when Sandman is bashing the beer can off his head, and there's this dude in like the front row, like like waving the trying to like wave the beer towards him. <laughs> uh, it's like, I, I felt like that guy, although he wasn't bashing himself in the head, like in front of me or anything, but it was just, it was just an amazing spectacle. It's, it's certainly, uh, certainly the greatest entrance anybody could ever make to enter Sandman. So take that Mo Rivera. <laughs> although I'll tell you what, I was at a Yankees game the last year of Mo Rivera and it was really cool. To see that. That was really cool. To see him come in and get a one, two, three, ninth against the Baltimore Orioles. Oh, wow. But uh all right. I was saying I spent days and hours and minutes and weeks while we prepared for this deciding. Is eighty nine number one? Is ninety one number one? I went with ninety one, but let's talk about eighty nine first. East Rutherford, New Jersey at the Meadowlands. It's always be the Meadowlands to me, even though it's closed now. Yep. 20,000 people. You know, it's closed, but uh, Eddie Trunk did a live show from there recently because Def Leppard used it to rehearse their show for their uh, their tour with Journey. Um, that, that tour opened at Madison Square Garden, so they rented out the now-defunct Meadowlands, which I guess it's in good enough shape to still be able to do that and you know they yeah. set up their whole stage into that so i was i was like wow i thought like when the odd closed but we weren't using it it was like filled with rats and garbage like no one would be yeah. able to s- set up a concert in there so but yeah yeah anyway uh yeah uh east 
Rutherford, New Jersey, the Meadowlands, and it was Jesse Ventura and Tony Schiavone who do an unbelievable job on commentary yep. all night. One of the highlights highlights of the show. Um, I'll even give it up now. I have Jesse Ventura as my MVP. Uh, his line about shooting someone outside of the ring, is it okay? <laughs> it's one of the great moments in color commentary in the history of wrestling. The way he bullies Tony during the show. So I mean, good. They, they ha- it's like he's testing Tony because they had never worked together before. And like the whole, the whole backstory is that Jesse is indignant because Tony took Heenan's place on, uh, on uh, challenge is, is what it was. So there actually was a kayfabe reason for him to be mad. But if you watch like those two guys together on WCW worldwide from 92 to 94, they're really great together. I mean, they called the Shockmaster debut together. They're like they, 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 they laugh. They're probably you know, you know, ho- holding each other, trying you know not not to laugh. Like you would watch these shows, and there would be like these long periods where somebody says something, and then you hear no sound for twenty seconds because they're trying not to laugh or they're hitting the hitting the cough button. Uh, what I, you know, I think. I think I only had this at number three because somebody put it in my head about this show, how there's only one. Well, no, no, there's one clean finish on the entire show. Oh, okay. And it's Mr. Perfect beating Red Rooster. And even that, you can tell that Red Rooster hurts his leg right in the middle of the match. Mm -hmm. They audible into a finish where I don't think perfect was supposed to win in three minutes. I bet it was probably supposed to go six or seven at least, but, um, that one, I don't know. I could have, I could have easily had this number one because the build to SummerSlam 89 is, uh, I, I love WWF 89. I've done probably more shows on that than any other year. I want to say, or by the time I get, by the time Greetings for Ballotown, you know, ends, whenever that may be, I'll probably end up doing more WWF 89 shows. Um, there's, you know, there's so many great matches on here. I love the Brainbusters hearts. Uh, That's opener. my match of the night. That's my match of the night. I love it. And you know what? I was like, so I'm like, I wonder if I think this is a five five star match, right? Because in my head, I'm like, I love that match so much, right? So I watch it, and I'm like, eh. It's probably like a four, four. I'll say four point two five. That's what I'll give it, right? So I'm like, I wonder what Meltzer gave it. I look, he gave it two stars. It's like, fuck you, Meltzer. That's that is so much better than a two star match. Well, come on. Well, you know, two stars. How could you be? How can you expect Dave Meltzer to rate a match highly when he's not actually in business with the people whose matches he's rating? But anyway, uh, the I always think of the lost. When you Bret Hart and Tully Blanchard, I would have loved a feud, a series of matches between those two guys. And the only time you ever see them in the same ring is here and in that Survivor Series '88 tag that I love so much, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in the future. Um, even the six-man matches are good on this show. I mean, oh, the fabulous Rujos, Rick Martel. Versus Rockers and Tito is awesome. I love it. Like that, Fifteen awesome that, minutes. That match. That match goes a mile a minute. Now Shawn Michaels is several steps behind everybody else, but the match is still really good. <laughs> um, 
the demolition and King Duggan against the Twin Towers and uh, Andre, uh, there's an unfortunate sign in the crowd that says demolition will topple the Twin Towers, which uh, I hope they enjoy their uh, job at InfoWars now. Uh, <laughs> so the, the point where Smash slams the boss man and then he slams Akeem and then Andre comes in and like, is, is Smash going to slam Andre the Giant? That would have been the weirdest moment in the history of professional wrestling because it's weird enough that he slammed both of the Twin Towers. If he had also slammed Andre, that would have been incredible. Um, if he would have slammed but, Andre, it would have made the Simmons documentary. It would have been such a big I, moment. <laughs> I do want to point out another sign in the crowd that uh, I, I tweeted this out the other day, and I don't know if you saw it, that uh, it, it's some kid wrote a sign that said Hogan and Burtis. He spelled Brutus wrong. Oh my god! And I didn't mean to make light of it, but um, uh, that particular tweet got a lot more likes than most of the stuff I throw out there. Where I just wrote, "You remember old Burtis, don't you? Where He's the, one of the one where, of the greats." <laughs> where are his parents? You know, like help your kid out, man. Watch your kid leave. Yeah, the I know. That, no, no spell check, but what this show comes down to and the wwf it's never entirely about the matches which is why you know it's not dave Meltzer's favorite promotion and that's fine he can he can like what he wants but the promos on this show holy shit i mean you you start out with the dusty roads i haven't been this excited since my first date with sally good and (laughs) and all that and then you get Okerlund saying "fuck it" with the sign yep. behind it because I got the original pay per view, so I had the tape with Okerlund. That's with classic. the sign. I actually have the clip up on my YouTube channel, which uh, oddly enough, I think it was like the second video that I created. Just a uh, just a little quick uh, thing. You didn't get and kicked then, off with uh, what's his name? You still- no, well. No, I, if I get kicked off for anything, it's it's a lot of the 1986 Bruins videos that I have posted. <laughs> um, so, like, and then the promo parade that they do in the middle of the show. Love it. Where, Love it. Where Heenan is all out of sorts, which, by the way, follows rugged Ronnie Garvin, like, just kind of doing a weird, like, and then he leaves. He's like, you have fun with those guys. But the leadoff hitter in that uh, segment Roddy Piper's 1989 SummerSlam promo. Now, in the 1980s, a, a drug of choice for people was cocaine. Mm-hmm. And, and then Len Bias died in 86. A lot of people got turned off by cocaine at that point. No, not Roddy Piper. Oh, no. Because, <laughs> all right, there are many coked up promos in the 1980s. And Roddy Piper announcing that he is going to eat a garage is the all-time coked-out promo because to say you are going to eat a garage is or doing a lot of cocaine. And he says this over the air. Now, nobody knows what it means because you can't consult the Urban Dictionary in 1989 and say, oh, my God, Roddy Piper just made a clear drug reference on this pay-per-view. But, I mean, it's... Like in the other stuff he's saying, he's clearly a guy who's altered in some way. Uh, Rugged Ronnie Garvin revealing himself as the worst comedian of all time is also pretty funny. I think he could have gotten some dates as an opener for the Catskills. 
I mean, his jokes just bomb and bomb and bomb. He wears a robe with cheap rhinestones. Ooh. <laughs> his delivery is so bad. So bad. But, like, look, uh, looking back now, that's just like an unintentionally funny moment. I really like the Warrior Rude match. It might be the best Rick Rude match in, in the company. It it was tremendous. And I also like the part doing it during it where Rude goes for a pile driver and things kind of go haywire. So Rude invents a Kawada driver where it's like a half. It's not quite a pile driver and it's not quite a power bomb, but he basically drops Warrior on his neck. It's one of the most vicious things. I remember seeing it at the time. I was like, what the hell was that? Like, Because he didn't have his head between his legs to do a proper pile driver. Uh, the, the main event is really good and jesse does such a good job selling it he does such a good job selling what a monster zeus is he's so good and i have to point the finger at randy savage for directing traffic because i always liked when he would like whisper in zeus's ear of like zeus would do something and then he would tag out and then savage would like whisper in his ear and i was like is zeus like dumb and he can't remember what he's supposed to be doing yep. because he's an act he's an actor in real life and he can't remember what he's supposed to do on this stage i uh, think about this sherry only had become a manager in wwf i mean she had managed in the awa but uh she becomes a wwf manager in like right after wrestlemania 5 so, so her first pay-per-view as a manager is this and she's in the main event which is a place where, correct me if I'm wrong, Jimmy Hart ain't been there. Slick ain't been there. That wow. that's Bob that's Bobby Heenan territory only. Interesting. And she's there like she's like Ichiro in two thousand one. She's like the MVP Well and, and Liz. We gotta get Liz. She's been in there. Well, yes, that yeah. yeah. Although I think of her more as a valet. Fair enough. As, Fair enough. Yeah. Sherry is more of a traditional manager in that she's constantly running interference and yeah jesse flipping out on hogan uh for for what he's doing to sherry which is actually kind of justified in retrospect because when they're doing the thing post-match and jesse's doing his rant which thankfully he doesn't do the bit where he's like i'm gonna come out of retirement (laughs) that's a wrestlemania only bit uh he's like now if we keep this replay going a little bit longer you're gonna see hogan hitting a woman (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so unbelievable and the fact that like in gorilla they're probably like jesse you cannot say hogan is hitting a woman we know he's hitting a woman but you just can't say it because it sounds bad speaking of hogan hitting sherry i is i'm reading um brutus beefcake's book i didn't know that they were an item back in the day hogan and sherry is that right yeah it says that in that book brutus says that Hogan and Sherry dated for a while. Well, I would take uh, I I would advise you to take uh, what Brutus has to say with a grain of salt as big. Uh, no, for sure, for sure, because especially when you hear him like do promo for the for the book and people ask him questions and he like has no idea what the answers are. But um, and and I. I think that grain of salt should actually be a pile, like the pile of cocaine he was busted <laughs> with at Downtown Crossing in Boston in 2004. But there are pictures of uh, Hogan and, and Sherry together in the book. I mean, he doesn't have his hand down her pants or anything, so it doesn't necessarily mean they were dating, but 
Yeah, she, Hogan had an open marriage, supposedly, so who knows? Well, and this was before she – this is way the, – the point he's talking about is way before she's married. This is like their Florida days, like in the 80s. Oh, know, okay. You know, or maybe even the 70s when he says that they dated way, way back, um, his, his claim in the book. It's a good book, but again, I'm reading it the whole time thinking like I heard him on Sean Mooney's podcast and he can't answer any questions. He remembers nothing. Yet here's this book with all these details of all these things he remembers. Like, so I don't know, but SummerSlam '89 is awesome. Check it out. And I'm giving my MVP to Randy Savage, but for match of the night, uh, because I didn't like how the Brainbusters Heart Foundation how they booked that and made it non-title and still had the Heart Foundation lose. I thought that was a little weird. Uh, I, I'm gonna give match of the night to Rude and Warrior because that was a that was a neat finish that set up Rude and Piper and uh, uh, sends Warrior on his way for uh, for better or worse to the next level. Did I say Brainbusters versus Heart Foundation was my best match and Jesse was yes. my MVP? Okay, mm-hmm. 1991 yet again New York, New York MSG twenty thousand is the attendance. Why don't I have the announcers written down? Who called this one? Vince? It is Gorilla Monsoon. Gorilla. Uh, oh, Gorilla Bobby, Bobby and, 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 and Roddy, Roddy Piper. Right. You had a three-man booth. You're right. Correct. Bobby or Gorilla's got to play, uh, play, you know, babysitter all night with those two fighting because Bobby keeps oh, getting mad. Oh, ten- there was a lot of tension in that booth. Yep. Like, there was one point where Keenan says, Oh, Piper, your parents, blah blah blah. Oh yeah, they they were they were never home. And of course, <laughs> Piper actually Piper actually did like leave home at like age fourteen, and he says so like, little close, little below the belt there, boobsy. And it's like, hmm. But we bo- we both had this number one because it's an awesome pay per view. It's a joy. It yeah. is so good. Um, let's go through this one match by match because why not? Yeah. Uh, the British Bulldog, Ricky Steamboat. The Texas Tornado Defeat of Power and Glory, Hercules, Paul Roman, the Warlord, Ted 43. A really cool match, which actually, if you listen to the original review on Place to Be Nation of this show, JT points out that all the tags are in order. Like each guy tags each guy. And then, like, let's say the Bulldog tags Steamboat, and then Steamboat tags the Tornado, and then the Tornado tags the Bulldogs, and the same with the heels. Hmm. Yeah. Really? Yep. I don't know. I, I, I always find that, like, I never noticed that stuff until, like, my current, like, time watching in, in the last four years or so. Like, maybe it's because I just watch squash matches, and I see the... When you have the jobber tag team, the second guy into the ring is usually the one that gets pinned. And, you know, the first guy has to get thrown over after they get offensive on him. And then they just toss him and then he makes a tag. But in terms of organizing the match, they probably pair off in in that way. Yeah, it's probably Bulldog and Warlord, I would imagine. Yep. And then Steamboat and Roma. And Hercules and Bulldog. I don't know if that's right for sure, but check it out. That yeah. does happen. Yeah. The second match. Oh, oh, do I love this match. Bret Hart defeats Mr. Perfect with coach by submission. 
1804 to win the Intercontinental Championship. All of five stars for me. Um, I'll tell you right now, this is my favorite match in the card. And I picked Mr. Perfect as the MVP because he's a hurt man. And for him to put on the performance he puts on in this match and the pain that he was in is one of the all-time feats in the history of the company. I love this match so much. The finish is awesome. Uh, Bret Hart's parents being in the crowd is cool. There's an awesome, Wonderful. <laughs> there's, there's an awesome moment in the uh, at the end when uh, Lord Alfred Hayes asks um, Stu Hart a question and then just take the mic away from him. Like yep. I, I don't it's even care wonderful. what you what you say. <laughs> um, but wow, I love this match, Peter. Tell me what you think. Well, there was a happy accident during that match that Perfect gets his tights ripped. And he wrestles the match. And he looks like this battered champion. And I thought it was a great visual. And it was something that uh, I can't imagine that they were trying to do on purpose. Because th- that would have been really hard to to pull off. Uh, yeah, the, the coach, for, for those of you out there who don't remember him, this is not uh, eight-year-old Jonathan Coachman or however old he would have been at that time. No, this guy is a- actually has some talent. Uh, John Because mm-hmm. he wants... Once drew a monster gate with Freddie Blassie back at 71 in Los Angeles. So most certainly not Jonathan Coachman. It is a fantastic match, and I love the finish, except for the fact that Hebner screws up the finish by calling for the bell way too soon. Yeah, like a little the, quick. The but I think that's just, pro- yeah. protect perfect, right? Yeah, because he was not, not well at all to right. the point where – on the last set of squash matches that he did leading up to SummerSlam. In fact, it might have actually aired after SummerSlam. He didn't even do the perfect plex because, you know, because of the nature of the move, he, he just couldn't do it with the way his back was. Yeah, I just, But a good torch, torch passing moment. You give it five stars or is it a little less for you? I know it's a little less uh, for some people. I, I would go a little bit less. Uh, some of it based on uh, the, the referee screwing up the finish. That really does kind of stand out. Which, uh, the... uh, you, yeah, to say to, to blame, to you know put it on the referee might be unfair. But, I mean, you have to take everything in its totality. It's like how people uh, criticize the Starcade 83 cage match with Hogue, uh, with a uh, excuse me, Flair and Harley Race because Gene Kaniski is inserting himself into everything and it, it harms the match. The worst is when there's like those I quit matches and the ref just won't stop asking. Yeah, hello, Roddy Piper, WrestleMania 11. Yeah. The Natural Disasters defeated the Bushwhackers in 627. I don't think we need to say a lot about that. Although that is well, Andre on the outside with his crutches, which is sad to me. It's, it's his last hurrah yeah. at the Garden. And it it is really sad, but it is nice to see him out there at least and to get, you know, it's not really much of a send off because they're not saying this is the last time he's going to be there. But it is fun to see him aside the Legion of Doom. Uh, it's, it's nice to see Andre in like different situations. Virgil defeats Ted DiBiase to win the million dollar championship. 13-11. Roddy Piper is all about this match uh cheering mm-hmm. on virgil um whatever uh super fun big boss man defeats the mountie in a jailhouse match 938 which sets off just a night full of fun with the mountie being taken to jail and oh man does jacques Rougeau do a great job selling all this so the cool. greatest 
the greatest comedy segment in the history of WWE pay-per-views because I can't think of one that could that that could be better. I I know Bob Euchre has he did commentary on a couple of matches at WrestleMania three and WrestleMania four, but doing commentary on a match versus doing the recurring bit that the Mountie was doing. And also not even after just after he lost the match, the way he set it up where he like gets in the face of, I I love how he calls the New York city, like the largest city, one of the largest cities in the world, uh, local hick cops. Like that, (laughs) that cracks, cracks me up every single time he does that. Especially since he's a Mountie. Well, yeah. Right. I mean, if you think about it, like Mounties are often hick cops. Uh, the Legion of Doom defeat the Nasty Boys uh, to win the tag team championships. That was a street fight, seven forty-five. Not bad. Legion yeah, you of had Doom to do finally the match that way because doing a traditional tag it, it wouldn't have made sense with those two teams. You, uh, I'm glad that they booked it that way, and it's just one of those things where they were pushing all the right buttons. IRS defeated Greg Valentine in seven oh seven. It's the W four versus the Figure Four. I'll never forget how they build that match. That's awesome. Kind of a popcorn yeah. match, though, to get everyone ready for the main event. Yeah. Hogan and the Warrior defeat Colonel Mustafa, General Adnan, and Sergeant Slaughter. Your boy Sid Justice was the guest referee, 1240. And, of course, this is famous for being the moment that the Ultimate Warrior said, hold on, Vince. <laughs> before, yeah. before we start this match, uh, let's talk about my compensation uh, because and, I am not going out until you get the beauty me- of it is – because of the lawsuit, there's so many documents available, so you can easily find out what people were paid on this show. Um, uh, b- before before we talk about this match further, I, I, I do want to uh, point out the uh, another comedy bit that happened on the show, which is Bobby Heenan with the NWA World Heavyweight title going to Hulk Hogan's dressing room. Oh, and getting the door slammed in his face? Yes. Yes. And... Uh, uh, who do you think you're about? Like the belt is not distorted on, you know, on the network or anything. This is a couple of months before that whole thing got underway. But that was certainly uh, one of my favorite moments. But this this main event is certainly um, interesting because uh, it, it's. It's 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 three on two, but the team with two seemingly has the advantage because, like, the quality of the guys on the side with an advantage. It's like sending out your fourth line on the power play against <laughs> like Taze and Kane in their prime or something. I mean, what, what's going on here? <laughs> Colonel Most, I mean, Sheik Adnan LKC. He's like the only guy who could claim to have main evented a. Uh, AWA and a uh, WWF Super Show. <laughs> Slaughter does well. Guys, Slaughter does well yeah. work in the match, though. I thought. Yes, and that's his. And it's his last hurrah as a heel because where the hell were you going to go with him at this point? I mean, what can you do? You just can't drop him because he still had at least something to give. So they do the tricky. Uh, I want my country back nonsense which which felt a little too much like recanting on one's deathbed <laughs> i forget there's a, there's a term there's a term for that uh but uh y- yeah it, it, the fact that 
Colonel Mustafa, who used to be the Iron Sheik, which always confused me because Iran and Iraq were at war for much of the 80s. Uh, he All of a sudden, now he's Iraqi. But Iron Sheik and Hulk Hogan on opposite sides of the ring in Madison Square Garden. How interesting is that seven and a half years later? What a great show. Just so awesome. Uh, my number one. I'll give mine one more. Did you give your match of the night and your MVP for this one? Uh, it, it's obviously Bretton Perfect, and the MVP is perfect simply for gutting it out. I had 91, 89, 92, 90, 98, 97, 88, 97, 96, 93, 95, 94. Is really totally interchangeable between 91, 98, and 89. I can watch any of those three at any time. Quickly, a couple guys reached out with some lists from the Place to Be Nation chats, and I wanted to share them real quick. Tim Slomka sent his. He has, in order, best to worst. This was hard, he says. 98, 97, 91, 89, 93, 95, 96, 92, 94. 90 and 88. Hmm. So there's no soft spot for 88 there, and uh, certainly on the negative side of the 1990 divide. Uh, Michael Dedamos, uh, number 11, 88. <laughs> number 10, 90. Number 9, 94, 96, 98, 97. Number 5, 93. Number 4, 95. Number 3, hmm. 89. Number 291 and number 192. He says the tricky thing about ranking these SummerSlams is that you get two pretty good matches on each show and a lot of crap. Uh, Jason Sherman also sent me a list, but I have to apologize to him because it was so far back in the chat that I couldn't find it. And I have no idea what he said. So I'm sorry, Jason. No. Very sorry. So. We did it, man. We did it. We ranked yeah. the SummerSlams. The Adams Division podcast convened once again, and we ranked the SummerSlams. We did it. Yes. And uh, if we were to do a show next month, do we rank the uh, uh, September pay-per-views of all time? Now, how, God, that would, that would be difficult. We'd have, people, would be we'd have people lined up around the block to download that. Yeah. They'd be like, wow, I wonder what September pay-per-view they have at number one. September is one of those months where they constantly change the name of it over time where I, I couldn't even identify what the September pay-per-view was last year. What did you say I the know, name was of the one where Bret Hart fought the Patriot? Uh, in Your House, Ground Zero. Okay, I like that which one. Which is certainly one they're never using again. No, no that, no, that name will not be recycled. Yeah. Do you have anything witty to say to uh, get us out of here? <laughs> well, it's been a hell it's been a hell of an experience watching all of these. As I said, I watched 10 out of the 11. Ironically enough, the one that I did not rewatch is 1991 because I watched that probably about every 3 or 4 months anyway. So, it's really nice to, you know, go back on these projects like this and the uh, uh greatest wrestler ever tag team edition for place to be nation and just kind of you know 
dive into these things and just enjoy them for what they are, really. Well, I want to say, Peter, that I really appreciate your friendship. It's been a great, it's been a great time just getting to know you over the last year or two and doing these Adams Division podcasts. It's so good when a kid who grew up his whole life loving the Sabers and a kid who grew up his whole life loving the Bruins can come together and do these podcasts. It it kind of it feels like it should give hope to like Palestine and Israel or something, you know. Like if we can do it, why not the world? And and as a thank you, I'm going to send you a DVD of Game Two of the 2010 uh, Eastern Quarterfinals between the Bruins and Sabers that took place in Buffalo, where Thomas Vanek gets hurt and the whole series changes at that moment. Yes, after the Sabers had taken a two to nothing lead in the game. Right. And by the way, uh, please please note that I did call them the Sabers. So you know I you know. You know it's getting late, and I'm starting to get tired when the accent. It's like on on the podcast the other day how I was like, I think I said Easton instead of Eastern. I could try I try to keep non regional diction, but it's it's really hard. It's really difficult for me. So just bear with me, folks. Well, Peter, I will yeah. gladly accept that tape. I'll watch it, <laughs> and then when I'm finished, I will package up Game Four of the 1993 Adams Division semifinals. Which have yes. which ends with Brad May. Brad May walking, walking Ray Bork, deking Andy Moog, and sending Rick Jenneret into hysteria. And, and he, sadly enough, because the NHL would change the names of the divisions the following year, I believe that to be one of the, well, it is one of the last games in Adams Division history. It's certainly the last one the Bruins ever played. And the last four ever were four to three Canadians over Sabres wins, including a game where Alexander Mogilny broke his leg to end his seventy six goal season. Sadly. Hmm. But Yes. Yeah, they lost all four of those games four to three and the the freaking Canadians went ten and zero in overtime that playoffs. How nuts is that? Yeah. We have you know what this last two minutes says to me? We have to do an NHL preview this year. We have to. Well, he, he, the the issue with that is when when you get to the Western Conference, uh, uh, for lack of a term, I really start to not give a shit. So fuck it. We just won't I, do that. We just won't do them. We'll just do the yeah. Eastern. Or I'll bring Dater on, and Dater can give us the Western because he's out in Colorado. Yeah, in, in back, uh, back like 10 years ago, all I ever wanted – when when the NHL would do their schedule is uh, I, I wanted every team t- to come to Boston once because back in those days I would pretty much go to every single game like I would not miss Bruins home games now now I get all pissy because why do I have to see Carolina the same number of times I see Montreal this is I'm like this is bullshit like why are there so many games against like the the Western Conference? It's now 15 games against the Western Conference out of a 41 game home schedule. So now I get frustrated, and yet I still go to most of the games anyway. Well, we, I think I, yeah, missed we, three last year. We usually run these shows on your feed, so we can do an NHL preview, and we can run it on my feed, and we can do an interview with Dater to cover the West. And then we can just like spend an hour like just talking about Bruins and Sabres games from the 1980s. Then do like five minutes on how we think the 2018-19 season is going to go, and then sign off. Yes. Who wouldn't want to listen to that? Something like that. that. <laughs>
Every hockey fan in America should be required listening. Who wouldn't want to hear 10 minutes on the Bob Sweeney Revenge game? Yes, for, for like the five people who actually know what that is. <laughs> All right, Peter. I love you, buddy. Yep. Adam's Division right. for Life. Yep. All right, we're out of here. All right, thank you. Oh